Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to another exciting episode of SFP Now, and uh, this week, um, as it's been a week or two since the release of uh, the new James Bond film, No Time to Die, um, my, my friend Ben and I thought we'd do um, a special show all about James Bond and talk about the James Bond movies, um, starting from the very beginning um, right up till the present day. Um, so um, without further ado, Ben, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Um, good evening, Ian. I've been expecting you. Oh, have you indeed? I was kind of expecting you to die, Mr. Ben. Um, obviously, as we're on radio, you can't see, but I am swiveling round and I do have a white cat and I am stroking it. <laughs> mm. um, well, I'm, I'm not going to go there because, um, you know, that, that song, I'm conjuring up all sorts of weird imagery. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, so we'll start with uh, Dr. No. The very first Sean Connery film, and an interesting uh, tidbit of information which every single Bond film fan knows is um, is the fact that um, initially uh, writer Ian Fleming um, didn't want Sean Connery to be James Bond, um, you know, because he thought he was too so like rough. He thought he was kind of like a, you know, I think he said something along the lines that he you know was too 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 much uh, too much working class sort of thing. Doesn't surprise me that you know. Um, I think I have heard that at some point, um, but I think that's perhaps that's like where some of the um, recurring theme of people always scrutinising James Bond comes from, I guess. But um, you know, it certainly doesn't surprise me from what we know about um, Ian Fleming. You know, the Bond books are amazing, but I don't think he was a very nice person, was he? I think it's come about now; it's quite clear. Well, to be honest, he was a complete asshole. Um, especially to women. <laughs> um, yeah, it's pretty pretty evident, isn't it? That well, I think it's pretty dominant. I think you'd have few people who, um, you know, you might have a, a, a few sort of um, people of that generation who would argue just for the sake of arguing. But I think most people that are fair-minded, you wouldn't get any argument that he was a bit of a nasty piece of work, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, um, it was actually, I think, it, was it Guy Hamilton who directed the first Bond film? I think it was. Uh, Terence Young, I believe. No, it was Terence Young, yeah, it was Terence Young. And Terence Young, um, you know, when when they were doing... When they were doing the original James Bond, they had um, they had they had Connery go to um, go to have his suit fitted at Savile Row, uh, as you know, which is a really exclusive um, you know place for where they where they where they make tailored men's suits, and um, and and basically he told Sean Connery who was finding the suit very very uncomfortable initially, he said just sleep in it, <laughs> and that's how they got the look for James Bond. Wow. Um, but it's yeah, pretty, pretty incredible. I mean, um, when you look at that time, um, for for us for a, a book to have only been written four years ago, and then the film to come out, it's um, including production time as well. It's quite groundbreaking. That really, in terms of, I 
can't really think of that many other things that they will have done that. You know, they went from a published book to an on-screen film in so mm. short an amount of time. Really. Well, I can I can actually tell you one thing um, right off the top of my head. Um, but you know, before we get to that, I think Doctor No was uh, was the third or fourth book, wasn't it? So it wasn't the first. Uh, of Ian Fleming's books, I think I think the Fleming's first James Bond book was released in in nineteen fifty three. So the first book came out ten years before the film. I think. Yeah, I think I'm pretty sure Casino Royale was the first story you know that he wrote. It was, yeah. Um, that and and to this day, that's the um, you know I, that's one of the only two Bond films I Bond Bond Bond, Bond books I've I've actually read. Um, uh, yeah, disclaimer: I've read a few when I was younger. Um, I think I've probably almost read all of them at some point, but I'm certainly nowhere near as um, I can't refer to the books anywhere near as easily as the films. The films I've seen sort of like easily probably a dozen times each, you know, yeah. over the years. Well, but, that, um, well, that other thing I was going to mention that got that got got made into a, a radio play, and then it became a movie serial with Flash Garden because uh, the the. Um, the, the the first um, Flash Garden story I think was uh, done in nineteen thirty thirty. It was done in thirty four I think. Then it went to radio in thirty five, and then they did the first uh, serial in thirty six. It's um, something that always sort of fascinates. It's a good point that yeah, Flash Gordon definitely definitely did do that. Um, I think something that always fascinates me is that, you know, the films weren't made in order and, you know, it wasn't right until sort of quite late into Roger Moore's that some of the last books were done. Um, So they obviously, you know, they didn't, what I mean is they didn't make the films in the corresponding order that the books were released. They just sort of must have um, written scripts around it and done what they thought, you know, until they went out of books. (laughs) Yeah, I think one of the difficulties was was uh, the two producers, Cubby, Bro- Cubby Broccoli and um, and his sidekick. I can't remember the sidekick of his, you know the other producer. Um, they they had problems getting hold of the rights to um, to to all the books, and I think the ones they had problems getting hold of were Casino Royale and um, and I think Thunderball gave them a few issues as well. Oh, right, yeah. It was Harry Saltzman, that's the other guy, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was Saltzman and Broccoli. Um, and, and, and I think that's all, like, uh, because Broccoli was trying to, um, try, you know, it was kind of like it was, it, was, it was a decade project for, for Broccoli because he'd been trying to get the uh, the movie rights to, to the uh, James Bond character for quite a few years before, before Doctor No was even made. And also Doctor No was made on, um, on a really, really tight budget. I was just looking at that as well, and when you look at things adjusted for inflation and pre-decimalisation, the budget for the film was a million dollars in 1962, and it took 59 million. Now that that's pretty incredible. That's a seriously financially successful film when you, if you actually adjusted the figures. Um, so right from the off, audiences absolutely loved it. You know that that much was evidence that evident that they were onto a hit. Yeah, I mean, I think I think a lot of it had to do with Connery. You know, he you know he just saw like. Uh, for me, Connery, you know, a lot of people say Daniel Craig's the best Bond, but for me, it's still Connery. Yeah, I, 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 I don't know. I'd, I'd probably say Daniel Craig myself personally over it, just because. But I think that I think you know, I'd, I'd argue that Craig's version is the most uh, faithful to the character in the book. I think, right? I, I wouldn't disagree with you that almost though. You know, I think it's a, it's a debate that you could have, but. 
I think what is fair to what you have to say about Sean Connery, he had nothing else to go off. Whether Daniel Craig had a lot to draw or not to take anything away from Daniel Craig, he's amazing. So that aspect is true. Um, that you know, Sean Connery had nothing to go from really, and sort of everything else. You know, even aspects of Roger Moore's Bond, even that, even parts of that were based on that, on what Connery did. You know, he made the character so iconic that it, it wasn't ever possible to go completely away from that. I don't think on screen. Mm. To be honest, I think I think Roger Moore is where they actually went away from the um, Connery uh, Connery portrayal quite a bit because with Roger Moore era is when you got all the all the cheesiness and the uh, the mad in, the mad inventions from Q Branch, you know, such as the submersible car in the yeah, Spy Who Loves Me. still and sort like of um, you know he's still pretty vicious at times and still knocking women around and doing horrific things like that as well, which Connery did so. It wasn't, you know. I know what you're saying. It was very, it was very different in a lot of ways. Yeah, but the thing is, Connery, Connery sold the viciousness so well. Whereas Moore, I was never convinced that that Moore's Bond was this, you know, vicious, uh, cold blooded calculating spy. Because I you think know, a difficult question is because we've got so many movies to get through. I guess if we're going through all of them, um, what do we think of Doctor No as the first Bond film? What's your thoughts, Ian, before we try and um, get through? I. The I think it does a really good job of establishing the formula for the Bond film. Uh, you know, uh, beautiful women, Czech, Ursula Andress coming out of the um, come, coming out of the water. That's such an iconic scene. Um, so much so that they kind of ripped it off for um, for, for, for was it uh, dying of a day? I think it's a truly groundbreaking film, not just a Bond film, isn't it? It, um, mm. it paved the way for so many things. Without that film, well, you, you know, know, the thing is, if you look at what happened in America. Um, after that film was released, you, you had uh, you had things come out like the Man from Uncle uh, yeah, in nineteen sixty. Like it basically paved the way for the mm-hmm. you know spy romps, didn't it? Really, without without that, um, and obviously that time, you know, I mean, I think the Cuban Missile Crisis was nineteen sixty two or three, so spy stuff was always going to be popular then, but they still had to do a good job of it, you know, and um, they did, you know, they absolutely nailed it and announced to the world. Um, I don't even think that, I don't think that, it's like one of those things like, say, like the Beatles or something like that. I don't think anybody could quite get their aim to actually achieve what they did. I don't think anyone could ever attempt to make it quite as big as it became, you know. Okay, well, moving on from uh, Dr. No, um, actually, then that's something Dr. No that had, you know, if you look at, if you look at uh, the the new film, Uh, Raymond Manet's character gets shot in the heart at the beginning. Yeah, that's yeah. A, that's actually taken from the uh, from the novelisation of Doctor No. Yeah. Um, because Doctor No, his heart was on the other side of his chest. That's right. Yeah. You know. Um, also, the, um, the 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 climatic scene of the um, of of the film uh, was also taken by you know from Doctor No, uh, the, the scene in which uh, Bond dies. Um, only in Doctor No, his Bond is only assumed dead. They don't actually say whether he's dead or not. Um, they don't in this either, because if you look at it, when when when, when at the moment that that Bond 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 supposed to have died, the camera pans away from him, mm. so we don't see a body. <laughs> we don't see a body. No, um, I think I'm pretty sure the way that he dies in Doctor No is different. I think the method is the same. Something's dropped on him, in, but it's different in the book than it is in the film, and yeah. I can't remember. Um, what it is in 
to the end of the movie. It's a while since I've watched Doctor No, but I think that was one of the big differences. I it, think is it is it caviar that he's killed within the book? Um, I, I I don't remember. Um, I don't I, I don't remember because it's so long since I've read the book. But I do I do remember that he died in 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 the um, in the book, and I also remember that you know the thing with uh with Doctor No having the heart and on his heart on the other side of his chest. And those two, those are the two things that 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 st- stuck with me from it. Uh, but get getting getting off. Dots got to know. Uh, let's move on to, and this is my favourite of the Connery films, I think, and I think it's also probably the most. Uh, it introduces so many elements, as in it introduces Spectre. Um, um, although you could argue that Spectre was kind of introduced in Doctor No, as in it was alluded to. But um, in from Russia with more from Russia with more, it's uh, more so introduced. I think. I think it is. I think it's what I consider the first proper Bond film. Not that it's take anything away from Doctor No, but I think the gulf in, is, is massive between those two films. It, um, it's sort of I don't know. Doctor No almost feels like a sort of novel, like a, an on-screen version of a novel in terms of the story. Well, Russia from Love, there's more fantastical elements like Little Nelly is introduced in From Russia with Love, I think. Mm, are you sure that's from Russia with Love, Little Nelly? I'm pretty sure that was a. Uh, I'm pretty sure that was You Only Live Twice. Might come back. But it I, might, I, might, I, have been fun, might have been Thunderball, actually, that. But um, the, ama- two appearances, I think. the amazing thing is, I'm actually looking at a list of the films here, and From Russia with Love was made in 1963. So it was made like a year later than Doctor No. So there was less, there was less time between between the films when 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 they were initially did them. Because uh, I'm looking down on this, Doctor No, 1962, From Russia with Love, 63, Goldfinger, 64, Thunderball, 65. And then, then there's a little bit of a gap um, with You Only Live Twice, which came out in 67. And yeah, you, you Only Live Twice is the first one, yeah. My apologies to um, Bond aficionados out there, yeah. What about Little Nanny? <laughs> yeah, well, I know that um, there, there was certainly a lot more sort of, um, you know, you were sort of saying about elements that became iconic from the film. From Russia with Love, there was a lot more gadgets, weren't there, and stuff like that, you know? Mm-hmm. Exactly. I mean, what you know, moving back to Doctor No a little bit. Uh, you know, in Doctor No, we're introduced to Major Boothroyd, and we're introduced to Major Boothroyd as Mister Boothroyd. Uh, there's not 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 even a mention of Q Branch or or a character called Q, yeah. and it's so it's in it's in sort of like um, you know that, that establishing scene in Doctor No where we're introduced to Major Boothroyd is basically telling Bond to use a world PPK. Uh, because I think he was using a Beretta or something, which they considered a ladies' gun. That's true, yeah. Um, so you had that scene, and, and that was actually, uh, I think somebody wrote Fleming after his first book and said that, you know, your spy would probably be using a world PPK and not not a Beretta sort of thing. Um, and, and, um, and in the second book that he did, he changed it to, to the world PPK. Um, but um, from Russia with Love is the first time we hear Major Boothroyd referred to as Q. Yeah, and it, um, it's a just it's just a classic film, isn't it? It's just one of those films that you look at and you, and you look at all sorts of things. And you know, not only the Man from Uncle Mission Impossible. Um, I can't think off the top of my head, and even stuff like the Avengers. You know, um, all that stuff. I just don't think it would have been possible without those that film, really. You know. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's is that. I mean, I I love the um, what I love about. Of course, I mean, you know, Emma Peel and um, Steed Avengers, not MCU. <laughs> For any younger um, people out there who who may have thought that I was referring to the MCU. Yeah, um, Emma Peel was wearing spandex before Captain America. <laughs> you know, because actual visual proof. <laughs> um, I think also something that's important to mention within um, from Russia with Love. It's sort of like you know what musicians call difficult second album. It, it, it could have gone either way and, and you know Dr No did start it but it was really important to get it right and to build on it and I think that's that the film deserves credit for that as well in that there was perhaps more pressure on that film than the first one in some ways or in different ways anyway mm-hmm. and um, also from Russia with Love it had some of the classic fight scenes I mean we had the we had the two gypsy women fighting in the gypsy camp um, which I thought was a uh, you know fantastic. Because, you know, we had two hot ladies beating the crap out of each other, which is always nice to see. Um, <laughs> and being, being very chauvinistic there. Uh, but we also had the classic fight with Bond and the uh, and the villain on the train. Yeah, that's referenced in, um, I'm pretty sure, Inspector, they basically recreate that, you know. They, 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 they did, but I think I think it was more visceral in the, uh, in, 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 in from Russia with Love. And we also had... I can't remember the name of the of the female villain in it. In it, but, Rosa Klebb, is it? Pardon? Is it Rosa Klebb, Maybe. It yeah, Rosa Klebb, I think it was. The um, Night Shoe, I'm pretty sure, from my memory. And 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 she that was that that Rosa Knab, um established that um, tradition that kind of carried on in the. You know, he'd have you know he'd think he's gotten away with with, with his love interest, and they're, they're settling down for a for a bit of a pash or whatever. And then the villain comes in, and um, that Rose can never establish that because she came came after him, didn't she? In the end, and uh, and 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 the little knife came out of a shoe. I just remember being a kid in sort of late eighties and early nineties, and my dad showed me the old Bond movies. I was terrified of Rose Clebb. She was genuinely scary looking and vicious, and when she was there was no punches pulled. You know, she wanted to murder him absolutely, like brutally. Um, and I just remember it was such a fantastic character sort of a shame that she was never picked up again in maybe the Daniel Craig arc that maybe could have been one way they could have reintroduced her in that but yeah well they could still reintroduce her again because obviously you know with the Daniel Craig arc it's over now and they can reboot um but um, I remember going to a foster home when I was a kid. I was run by nuns, and I could swear to God, one of the nuns looked like Rosa Knab in a <laughs> I swear to God. Um, so you know, when, whenever she was around us, I, I was actually on my best behaviour because you know, you, you never knew what could have happened. <laughs> Absolutely, mate. Um, I'm just looking at the years as well. It's pretty impressive that you know, 1962, 1963, 1964, 1965, and it wasn't until you only lived twice there was a two there was a two year gap. But to make all those films, to write all the scripts and produce them. It's pretty impressive stuff, that. It must be said in that short space of time. It actually makes me wonder if, um, you know, with Broccoli having struggled to get the the rights to the movies and that, it makes me wonder if he basically had screenwriters, you know, do do do, do a few. So so there was a few ready to go when he when he eventually sort of like got the arc here. That's true, yeah, very, very true. So then we're on to the absolutely iconic stuff, aren't we? Now we're on to Goldfinger already, which for many people is certainly... You know Connery's greatest one and the greatest Bond film, but I'm just going to put my hat in the ring and say I think it's an awesome film, but it isn't my favourite Bond film and probably not even my favourite Connery one, which is quite controversial. 
Um, perhaps most iconic, I would give that. But I watched it not that long ago, and I thought, for me, there are better sort of Connery Bond movies than Goldfinger. You know, I think it was the uh, I think it was the first truly outlandish one, though, in in the sense of the uh, of the villainous plot was to basically, uh, you know. Rob Fort Knox. I think I think his plan was to destroy all the gold in Fort Knox or something. I think he wanted to steal it. But he, he oh yeah. I think if he he, um, he basically was like supply and demand, wasn't it? You know, if if he got rid of it all, then he had. I think he had his own gold supply, didn't he, or something? Yeah, I think what what it was. He wanted to destroy all the gold in Fort Knox so that so that he could uh, justify putting the prices up on his own gold supply and sell yeah. it at an extra profit. I think that was the scheme. Um, but I um, I think I think the most memorable thing about Goldfinger for me is the uh, is obviously the iconic I expect you to die, Mister Bond. You know when he's like yes. he's lying on the table and he's got a laser heading towards his crotch. <laughs> it's um, he was he's up there with the greatest villains, and if you were right in the top five Bond villains, you'd have to have Goldfinger in your top three. You just would. And also, um, you know, it was it was it was Goldfinger that introduced us to Oddjob as well, wasn't it? With the with Odd the job, hat. yeah, Odd, it was. Yeah, um, what was his name now? Um, I can't remember. I used to know the name of the person who played him on the top of my head. I'll remember it in a minute. Um, but yeah, Oddjob was a truly great character. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, Oddjob is one of those characters I wanted to see return. You know, just for the bow and the hat. You know? <laughs> um, you know, if 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 the odd job was to be in a Bond film today, he'd probably decapitate someone with a bow and a hat. But <clears throat> Whereas I wouldn't have been able to get away with that back in the sixties. I don't think so. No, I mean I don't know how you would put him in the film now and, and make it um, sort of. I don't know how you would do that and, and make it, you know, tie in with stuff. But there's no doubt that it was a truly, um, and he had a truly iconic death, didn't he? Being fried to life on the on the. Uh, on the electric fence, you know, the railings. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Um, oh, only the, you know, so like I think the most iconic, one, another iconic thing was about, about Goldfinger was also uh, the introduction of a DB5. So it was, I think that was the first film where they actually used the Austin Martin DB5. I think it's like, I think that's the reason why it's remembered so iconically because, you know, you've got Pussy Gore and you've got what's, again, you know, for me, it's, certainly in the top three greatest Bond songs you know I don't think any of the other songs had been quite as iconic as that and I don't think they'd had I think Goldfinger is you know up until that point I think that's the point where that made the Bond theme tune to whatever film it was as almost you know as big as the film or something you know in terms of uh, waiting to see who was going to sing it and stuff like that not that the other songs weren't good but I think that's when that that started for me really as well. Mm. And also the um, introduced that thing of the innuendo with the uh, with with the with, with the female lead, you know, Pussy Galore. And then, yeah, then, yeah. then then quite a number of films later in Moonrake, he had uh, Doctor Goodhead. All sorts of stuff, yeah. <laughs> a lot of vagina and uh, you know Austin Powers and all that sort of it's, stuff. You know they don't do now, but um, I think I think it was it was actually done quite a lot in the uh, in the sixties and seventies. You know the the you know the, the the names of the um, of 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 the uh, woman that he normally hook up with, or or, or maybe the villain. Um, but yeah, I think I think Goldfinger. It's not my favorite either, but I think it it, it is the one you know 
along with uh, from Russia with Move that actually actually saw like uh, develop the actual formula for what for what the Bond films were to be in in terms of uh, you know Vingham living in the side of an active volcano or something like that. You know, I think also stuff. what I think also what was important was you know you had Doctor No who was sort of like uh, and had you know Spectre and all this organization, but this was just one person on their own. This was just literally like a crazed megalomaniac and um you know and i think it's particularly important to the time as well that you know it was a foreign body as well which you know looking back now you can sort of see you know i don't want to say xenophobic you know but certainly racist overtones and stuff like that but at the time i think that would have been expected from people i don't think you would have been able to accept that any bodies were from the west you know yeah, I think I think Goldfinger, the, the baddie, was sort of like German, wasn't he? And I think obviously, it was Austrian, actually, but yeah, mm. German. I think he was. Um, I think he was Austrian. Yeah, but anyway, yeah. So, so obviously, there still would have been there still would have been that you know bit bit of a. Um, oh yes, yeah, less than twenty years ago since the end of World War Two. So you know there was that um, xenophobia against the Germans and and stuff like that. Was I think at the time it wasn't even seen as xenophobia, and that's the point I'm trying to make. Is that is when we look back now, we can see it as that. But at the time, it, it was just commonplace, wasn't it? You know. Mm-hmm. And the next film they did was Thunderball, which was so good they made it twice. Um, yeah, it was. They remade it with Never Say Never Again, didn't they? <laughs> yeah, and uh, Never Say Never Again was a was quite an appropriate title for the second second stab at it. You know, because Bar- yeah. you know because Connery said that he'd never do it again. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly, yeah. I guess we can cover that film as well because you know it's always debated, isn't it? Is it canon? Is it not? You know, blah blah blah. So, I guess I think it was yeah, actually made. I, I think it was made by Canon. I think it was actually a Canon picture, wasn't it? It wasn't. Yeah, I don't know. Sorry, I meant I didn't mean Canon films. I meant whether it's canonical, but it wasn't made by Eon. I know that. Yeah, I think I think it was made by Canon films. It was one of the, you know because Canon were notorious for doing cheap films back in. Yeah, I meant know. more Canon as in of the Canon. Sorry. Um, yeah, I know, I know, I know what you meant. It's just that when you said yeah. it, it just rang that bell for me. That you know, I, I think it, absolutely. Yeah, um, I mean, you know, it was a cheap invitation. I think that. I've tried to watch Never Say Never Again and walk back at it and think, you know, it, it just doesn't stand up with the rest of them, you know. Also, it, it just seems odd seeing Kim Basinger in a Bond film. It just seems that, um, I guess, I guess like Bond films have always been quintessentially British to the rest of the world and everybody's known that sense of identity. But that very much felt like an American action film for me. Yeah, um, but, not Thunderball, Never Say Never Again. Yeah. It felt like what would have happened if Americans would have gotten their hands on the Bond franchise. You know, I sound very um, patriotic now, which I'm not really. <laughs> I you know, it is one of those things that is so iconically British. I guess James Bond. That, um, you know, you think there's not many. There's not. He makes me feel more British than the Queen, James Bond. Put it that way. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, the Queen's actually descended from German. German yeah, stock. Well, that's it, yeah. yeah. Um that that whole row that whole family is actually an amalgamation of sort of like uh, English, German, Spanish. <laughs> you're, interesting. You're, it's you're interesting, only... you know, um yeah, I mean Thunderball was an awesome plot, I felt. It was such a well written film, um, you know, which most of the Bond films are but it was just a really, really, really tight movie, and I think an important 
sort of move back towards Spectre, almost like Goldfinger was on its own in a way. It's almost yeah. like a side quest. You know, obviously massively important for him to save the world and everything like that. But it carried on that Spectre, didn't it? It carried on that, that arc of Spectre. It did. And, um, you know, I think one of the most impressive things about Thunderball for me was all the underwater action sequences because it was kind of the first of the Bond films to actually do or the under, underwater action, or the, or the diving and, and stuff like that. But they didn't, didn't it? Again, you know, when you look at the box office, nine million budget film, which is obviously a lot more than nine million pounds now, but 141.2 million, it's phenomenal, that. that, that they, these are huge, huge budget films. Huge um, box office sort of successes, you know. Mm. Like, you know, unprecedented for any series. At that point, you did have films like Gone with the Wind, which is still... I think either tied with Titanic or even beats it, adjusted for inflation, off the top of my head. But I don't. But, but really, I think this was it was the first film series that continually succeeded in the cinema in the world. Yeah, it was. I mean, I, you know, Thunderball is actually one of my favourite Connery ones, but it's one that you got to be in a mood to watch because the uh, the plot is quite dense in comparison to the earlier ones. He's not yeah, the amazing part. It's quite it. a, um, it's quite cerebral, isn't it? Really, it's quite. Mm. There's a lot of sort of um, the, that sort of nuanced aspect of spy, where it's not all sort of action and Bond kicking people's head in and stuff like that. It's much more um, sort of espionage based, isn't it? In a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm just trying to get that visual out you know, in my head. You know, Bond kicking people's head in makes him sound like a bit of a chaff, doesn't it? All right, I'm Bond, James Bond. Gonna kick your head in now. <laughs> Absolutely, mate, yeah. <laughs> it's not one of them. Um, but yeah, I thought. Um... Funnily enough, funny you should say that. You know, the more that you think about what James Bond's influenced, that's exactly what happened in Kingsman, isn't it, really? You know, which I know we sort of moved away from Bond, but, you know, that's, that's a good point. There were just simply so many things that it. Um, Really, that movie, sort of, the first one anyway, said, what if James Bond didn't have a privileged upbringing? What if he was a chaff, you know? Yeah, you know, and in Kingsman, they make him out to be more effective spy because of it. <laughs> exactly, yeah, and, you know, obviously not to drift too far away from Bond, but it's not really drifting away from it because it is outlining how many things it's influenced, you know? And the more you think about it, the more you'd find. Um, but, yeah, I think... Thunderball, um, it's up there. It's a truly brilliant film, you know, for um, a lot of ways. I think by that point as well, they'd established the character and they could do sort of more with it, almost, you know? Mm -hmm. I don't think they could have done that cerebral element to it without you knowing who the character was and what he was all about and what he was capable of, you know, without the three films behind him already, you know. And and uh, when you compare Thunderball to what come, came next in You Only Give Twice, uh, You Only Give Twice is more like a cartoon than Thunderball was, as in it kind of gets back to that outlandish, uh, you know, sort of like um, Bond... And it also introduces Blofeld, um, you know, the head of Spectre, who we'd only really seen from various different angles, stroking a cat. We'd never seen the face of Blofeld until you only give twice. And yeah, that's the first time that he was there. And um, was it was it Tally Savaras? No, 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 no. It was Donald Pleasance. Donald Pleasance, yeah, that's Tally Savaras as well. Where he isn't he? Yeah, Tally Savaras is in the next one um, on the list, which we'll we'll we'll. Uh, We'll talk about You Only Give Twice a little bit first, though, because um, You Only Give Twice is actually one of my favourites. 
Yeah, it's a great film. I mean, um, I don't think that you would be able to make someone from West look Japanese nowadays without creating a lot of problems, you know. But well, again, you know, the, you know, the, the funny thing, the time, fun- wasn't it? The funny thing is, he didn't even look Japanese, he just looked odd. <laughs> he looked like a Vulcan out of Star Trek or really, like, on or something. He was just, he was, um, you know, whereas uh, there's a film that I like, which was made in 19, 1980s, which is uh, called Remo Williams, Armed, Unarmed and Dangerous. And um, they, they, they'll still do, they'll still sort of like uh, making Western actors and look, look Japanese or Oriental back, you know, in, in back then. And uh, the the um, the actor that plays Chun in that is um, is an American um, white actor, and he's made to look more Oriental than than Connery was. So obviously the makeup had come on quite a bit, but you know, still it just looked odd. Absolutely, mate. Absolutely. Um, but I think that's I think that was part of the joke, though. I think I think to be honest, uh, it felt like the the true Oriental actors in in that film. We're we're actually in on the joke. Perhaps, mate. Yeah, yeah. Quite, quite possibly. Yeah. Um, I think at this point as well, a bit like I was saying with you know the difficult second movie being from Russia with Love After Doctor No. At this point, there will be a lot of expectation on Connery as well and mm-hmm. on the films. And you know now, and it was actually really starting to get excited at the prospect of a, of a Bond film coming out. You know, even mm-hmm. though it was the fifth one or the fourth one, by that point, you know, the franchise was already sort of pretty big. Yep, and it's also the first one where where his uh, gadgets uh, get, you know, think was wasn't you only give twice one that introduced, um, you know, some of the some of the you know more singular elements such as a laser watch and um... he has a laser. I'm, I'm pretty sure he has a laser watch. I thought he had a laser watch in um, Goldfinger, but I might be wrong. But mm-hmm. anyway, I know he definitely. Um, I, I incorrectly said that from Russia with love was little Nelly, but little Nelly is definitely in. Um, you only live twice, you know. Which, if you look at it now, how they made that is pretty. It's, it's still it still looks pretty amazing for the context of the time. Considering it's sort of over fifty years ago, mm. and the amazing thing is, um, if you go, if you rewind back to Thunderbar for a second, uh, in the introductory scene for Thunderbar, he um, he escapes on a on on a jetpack. You know, he has one of those jetpacks on his back. Yeah, yeah. You know, so so you know that the te- you, you you can see the innovations in technology coming through and all, all these uh, other things. I think, but... you you know there isn't there are no action blockbusters who don't owe something to the James Bond films because that's what they all come to isn't it that's what they all come back to without those films you wouldn't have all those things now you know there was mm. nothing you know it was pretty much the birth of the modern action film yeah I, I'd, I'd say it was yeah I mean um... I mean I can't think, I, I dare say there are other things and someone who's much more of a cinephile than I am would sort of educate me but as far as I'm concerned, you know, it's um, the more you think about them, and sometimes you, you don't think about the earlier films because you tend, I tend to think about the films I grew up with, really, Timothy Dolan onwards and watching the Roger Moore ones when I was a kid. But, you know, now that we look back, now I'm a bit older and I look at it objectively, or try to, because I'm a massive Bond fan, so I can't really. Well, they really were innovative, those films, for so many reasons, the stunts and everything, you know, mm. they, were, they were incredible. Yeah, and, uh, you know, the innovation goes on, and I mean, you know, um, we'll, we'll get to the innovation a little bit later in, when it term, in terms of stunts, because, uh, you, know, you know, one of the Roger Moore films has a very, very famous stunt in it, 
And there's also a, a, a good stunt in Diamonds Are Forever, which is completely ruined by the, the worst continuity ever, ever, ever. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think for me, You Only Give Twice is, is the... Um, it, it kind of introduced more of the comic book aspect to the James Bond character, as in, you know, Bong felt had his, uh, his top secret base was in the side of an active volcano and everything was actually being operated and run in, in, in that volcano, you know, because of the, the volcanic molten lava, it was all hydroelectricity that, that they were using that was being generated from the volcano. Absolutely. And um, I think also it's the film where something else is innovative is, you know, you look at any film now, even the MCU right up to today, there's always a bit where like the good guys escape because the body's busy delivering a speech like Thanos, for example, about how much he's going to kill somebody. That all started with Bond, you know. I'm not saying it wasn't in any other story or on screen, but you know that even the title of the film, you only live twice. You know, I remember him saying once just before, once while you're alive, and once just before you die, and it really started to give us more complicated villains on screen that sort of were, you know, gave us an insight into what their attitudes were and what their motivations were, you know, because they all thought that they were in the right. They didn't think they were the bad guy, you know. I'm not saying it was as nuanced as it is today, nowhere near, but I think that maybe laid a bit of the groundwork for some of that. Yeah, and I also think it was probably one of the first films to actually give us some, some Japanese and Asian characters that moved away somewhat from the stereotype. Because I think before then you had Fu Manchu and 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 um, and, and um, you know most Asian characters they were portrayed in a certain way. Whereas in in this you had a um, you know you know Bond meet up with um with. It was very much him having to go into that world, wasn't yeah. it? You know, it wasn't. And, you know, it, it is a good point that you know it's um, fair enough. And then it brings us to the um, for some controversial one, certainly. I don't think there's ever been a more divisive film than Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Well, before before we get to that, um, you know, we we forgot to mention that basically Sean Connery opted out of a uh, after after you only give twice. He basically announced when when they were making that it was going to be his last film, which led to the Brockley and Saltzman um, having to cast a, a new actor to play Bond, which was George Lazenby. Um, who made his first and only appearance um, in in Honor Majesty's Secret Service, which came out in the year of my birth, 1969. Wow, there you go, mate. A great year. Woodstock, everything. Mm. Um, I'm pretty sure as well. I remember writing an essay about James Bond films when I was at school for media studies. And um, I'm pretty sure somewhere in the back of my mind that he'd not... He'd only really done advert work before George Lazenby. He wasn't an established actor, was he? I don't think really. He was more of a model. Um, he was more of a model. He'd, he'd basically had one speaking role before he did James Bond, and it was an advert. <laughs> um, but yeah, he'd no, he had no acting experience. And to be honest, uh, to be perfectly blunt with you, when you watch it, you can tell. Um, but. That said, what what he did have is he had more. He had more. There was more. His fights were more visceral. I'd say he was more visceral and vicious than Connery, amazing Bond. As in, when, I mean, you, when you watch those scenes where he's fighting, you could believe that it was him doing it. It's um, without those films, really. You know that that one film is the film that really, 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 really fueled the idea for what they wanted to do with Daniel Craig's arc. And um, you know, there's so many famous directors now who look back, and not just as a Bond film, but a lot of them. 
you really rate that as one of the, their, their favourite and greatest films of all time, you know? I think, um, I think the way what, it was made. I think what it was, I think it, I think it basically humanised Bond, as in up until... Very, very old, yeah. I mean, it was, you know, like sometimes things happen gradually with changing ideas, but it was so dramatically different. And I think it's sort of like a testament to George Lazenby that what was always like, oh, the one with E. Connery back, it was so dreadful. When you look back now, it's a, it's a remarkable piece of cinema, you know? Mm. And it's also, uh, Telis, you know, Telly Savannah plays Blofeld in that, and basically uh, Blofeld's actually grown by quite a few inches, and, uh, you know, he's suddenly a bit more burned than, than he was, and uh, the, the scar over his eye's gone. Um, which... I mean, you'd never, ever, you've seen Bond in dangerous situations, but... You'd never seen him emotionally vulnerable on screen before, ever. And you really did in that movie. There's one scene I remember where, you know, he's almost crying to his girlfriend, you know, who his fiance who ends up, you know, saying, they're going to kill me, I'm scared, you know, I'm frightened, which was just, like, unheard of at the time, mm. you know? Yeah, and I think, I think that, you know, I think that's probably one of the reasons it probably didn't do too good when it was released. Because, um, A, you know, no one really knew who were... Uh, who Lazenby was, and B, there was also the, you know, a scene like that would have been very controversial then because yeah. up until that point, Bond had been, you know, this vicious womanising assassin. Exactly, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's it. It's, um, mm. I don't know, I mean, I haven't watched the film for a while, but I don't even know if he, if that's the only woman that he sleeps with in the film. It probably is, you know, which was something else that was probably quite... Um, I think I think it was, but he didn't. He, he did have quite a few opportunities in Blofeld's um, little. Um, so I think I think the plot was Blofeld was trying to release a virus through these through these women that he'd uh, been been hypnotizing or something. It's basically like you know. I mean, the the, the plot for um, Black Widow is not a million miles sort of removed from that, is it? Really, in some ways. Mm. Or, or the plot for No Time to Die. There's you know there's elements of No Time to Die in it. Indeed, they well, use yeah, they, yeah. they use the um, they use the you know um, with all the time in the world uh, frequently. That's no usually, time to yeah, that, that's what his arc was really. All those five films were a, um, based on that, and, and, and in some ways, it was almost like a what if version. It flipped them around, didn't it? Um, no time to die. It did. Uh, but on on your Majesty's Secret Service, I think it, it's another one that you know is the first Bond film to give us a um, skiing and um, all these visceral stunts uh, involving skiing and 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 um, don't they go down the luge at one point where where they I think so yeah I yeah. mean it's, to be honest with you it's probably that's me saying it's an amazing piece of cinema which I, which it is it's it's probably the film that I've seen the least and I know the least about and the reason for that is. I think when I was a kid, I always just thought, oh, yeah, it's not very good, that one. Or it's just that that's the weird one that they made. So I never watched it as much as the others, whereas all the other ones. So all my memories of Bonds are of watching them when I was little on videos that my dad taped off the telly and stuff like that. And I think that's just the one that I saw the least. So it's, it's almost like not as much as in subconscious as, as the others. I think it's also the one that's being least shown out of all of them. Um, it's, Quite possibly, it's maybe. It was least shown as much. Yeah. But it's, you know... To be honest, um, it's quite memorable to me because you had a different actor playing Blofeld, which felt really weird because the you know the previous actor was a lot shorter in stature. 
Um, and you suddenly have this, you know, big bulky bulky bloke uh, in Terry Savannah's play, playing Blofeld. And in the film before, Blofeld was sort of like, uh, you know, um, a, a much shorter bloke, a less physically imposing guy. I mean, I'm not sure that anybody at that point could have done more than George Lazenby did. I think the fact it was just the fact yeah. that uh, it wasn't Sean Connery, and that was enough, wasn't it, for people to sort of turn against the actor? I think so, yeah, but um, I was talking about a different point, mate. I was talking about Blofeld. Um, you know, for me, I, I, what I found jarring about uh, On the Majesty's Secret Service more so than the actor was was the change of actor for Blofeld. I don't, pers- yeah, personally, I don't think that was as massive as changing James Bond, but I understand what you're saying that, um, you know, that, that was also a um, very, 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 very different, I think. It, it just... Mm. Um, I think he was more in fitting with that film, you know. Yeah, but it it just seemed it just seemed strange that he had a completely different build of actor, in a, an actor that had a completely different physical look to the previous guy, and then to do it again in the following film, and they have a, have a different actor play Blofeld in Diamonds Are Forever. So either Blofeld had a really good fucking plastic surgeon, or <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Like it's it's really odd. It's it's odder than it's odder than the Bond ring because I think I think every actor that's played Bond to a certain extent has been quite a physical, tall bloke sort of thing. Whereas the most iconic Bond villain, Blofeld, has been played by you know various different actors that are all, that have all been various different shapes and sizes. I guess so, mate. Yeah, I guess it's not something I'd, I'd ever really. Um thought about but it would be interesting to see it'd be interesting to read the book and to see whether or not that particular depiction of Blofeld you know did explore a different part of his character and whether or not it was something to do with that you know um, as I said I'm not au fait with the books in the way that I am with the movies mm. um, but um, something interesting that I've just come across is that yeah, I didn't know this but George Lazenby did state that he would only play the role of one once yeah he did and and basically, he did that based on uh, some advice from um, from 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 a friend of his, which um, I think is still an advice, you know. And I think that's that's sort of made that film iconic in a way, you know. Yeah, but it's it's also made George Mason be um, a bit of a joke in terms of you know he was handed this franchise on a plate and he only did one film. Yeah, I guess so. But like for me, it's sort of, I, I don't know, you know, I think it's a great show of principles, you know, and he cared more about that than he did about, you know, perhaps he, he didn't want to be James Bond full stop. And also, you know, he didn't know how his career was going to go at that point. Perhaps he thought, I'll never have anything else if I, if I only do this. He didn't want to get typecast, you know, but it didn't turn out. And, you know, he sort of unfortunately didn't go on and have a great career, but I don't, I, don't I think, think part of it is, I didn't, did, you know, I don't, I don't think, um, I think it was actually unusual back then to have the same actor, you know, reprise the same role as, as often as Connery did. You know, because Connery did, you know, he up up until up until when when Lazenby took it over, Connery had done five Bond films. Yeah. And and I don't think you know, I, I think when they made the first one, Doctor No, it was kind of a little bit of an experiment, and thought, hmm, and and then they made then they made another one. And then they made, you know, I think the surpri- I think think they were, you know, I think they were just as surprised by the success, um, you know, as a, as anyone else really. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, and also I think it was such a blow that 
Sean Connery said, I don't want to do it. I don't think they knew what to do. Um, mm. But at that point, one thing that I will say is I have to give the producers credit because by that point it was an established franchise and they could have sort of gone with a safe bet and a big name and they didn't, you know. They chose George Lazenby and yeah, it was a risk. You know, for some people it either did or didn't pay off depending on the views on the film. But I think that's always been important in selecting a James Bond, which was also the case with Daniel Craig, you know. Um, I guess I just thought I'd mention that, yeah. Mm. That it, it, um, that's the first change we had, isn't it, really? Mm. You know, up until that point, we, we had Connery. No one knew, you know, obviously everyone knew one last forever. Mm. And then, then we had but, Terry Savannah, as Bono felt, taking over from Donald, Donald's, you know, Donald um, Presence. <laughs> so so that was, that was another change. <laughs> and then it all changed back again for Bond um, with uh, the next one, Diamonds Are Forever, with Sean Connery. And yeah, I think people almost um, and the outcry for for Sean Connery to return was just too big, wasn't it? I think you know. So he, for whatever reason, he said, "Right, you know." Well, I think I think they offered him more money, and that's the only reason he came back. Um, I was going to say he must have been offered a phenomenal amount of money at the time, you know. Yeah, and they also think um, you know. I think they actually actually had to um, you know up the budget in Diamonds Are Forever as well, so so that Bonofelt could actually morph into another actor and suddenly grow hair. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, um, I don't know. I mean, I think that he's such an iconic baddie, but if you look at the collective screen time that he's had in all the films, the first five or six films, it probably doesn't equate to anywhere probably half of what Goldfinger had in one film, you know. But I think that's what part of his appeal was, wasn't it? That he was always there in the background and I think Donald Pleasance did that best, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm actually wondering if Bogolfer was actually um, was actually more of a code name in, in the original run of films because, you know, as, as we say, we had three different actors play and, but it wasn't just three different actors, it were three different actors who were, who were physically very different from one another sort of thing. I guess so, yeah. I guess they just got what who they could at the time, you know. And um, I, I don't know, you know. I don't. I, 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 I wouldn't know too much about the um, the casting process and, and why they chose who they did for both films, you know. Because it kind of messes up with the it kind of messes up the continuity in a sense when you're seeing these different actors play both both films. Uh, more, more, to, you know. It was so at the first. It just seems seems odd, um, unless you actually sort of like take that leap of imagination and think, oh well, this is you know, Blofeld's just a code name for the for the head of the head of the big bad organisation, and it just gets passed on to the next person in line that takes it on. Sort of thing. I guess it's sort of one idea, you know. And people have also said the same thing about the James Bond name, haven't they? As well, whether that's true or not. They they I, they, I, I they, they have, but I think uh, I think up until Daniel Craig's films, it was actually canonically. Uh, assumed, as in we're all led to assume that it was the same character that we met in Doctor No that we seen in 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 um, all the other Bond films up until the Daniel Craig one. Um, Quite possibly, mate. Yeah. Um, because it, what do we think of Diamonds Are Forever? Diamonds Are Forever. It's a, it's a funny one because um, it was sort of like mostly set in Las Vegas, I think, um, and. It felt to me like Connery was folding his performance in. He didn't seem to be as into playing Bond as he was in the um, in the first five. I think it, you know, to a degree, maybe like it was such a massive ego trip that everybody wanted him back again, and it's almost like you've lost a bit of that hunger for it, you know. Mm. But 
One one of the things that I remember most about Diamonds of Forever is the uh, is the car chase. Yeah, and if you look at the car chase, is it is this bit where it goes on its side and it goes through the tunnel on 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 I think its right side, and then you see it come out of the tunnel on its left side, <laughs> and 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 they tried to correct it by you know doing this sort of like little bit of a inserted scene where. Where you actually see the see you see the car car flip over from the driver's point of view, where <laughs> you see it flip over the other way inside the car, but it just looks really odd. It's um, I think it's sort of like a, I think I think the made diamonds are forever in a rush. I think Howard Hughes was involved in you know I think he helped fund Diamonds Are Forever, so they'd film it in Vegas. So I think I think the hotel where the film or the casino scenes. And that was actually owned by Howard Hughes. Wow, I didn't know that. That's pretty awesome. Um, you know, and, and Howard Hughes was a was a filmmaker and a pioneer and and, and um, a bit of an entrepreneur back in his day. But it was also, um, um, I mean, they made a film about him. You know, with um, Leonardo DiCaprio a few years back. I can't remember what it was called. But yeah, Howard Hughes, um, you know, gave them permission to use his hotel in the film Diamonds Are Forever. So that's a bit of trivia. So much trivia, so many movies. Um, yeah. We also, I can't remember the name of the two villains, the two henchmen in Diamonds Forever. They're quite kind of memorable and they're really sadistic. Do you remember them? I'm just having a look now. Um, oh, I can't they're the sort of villains I could actually envisage Penn and Teller playing. If they were to ever remake Diamonds of Forever, I could see I could see the magicians of Penn and Teller playing these two villains. <laughs> Yeah, they were pretty brutal. I remember that. Um, <laughs> they were. They were savage. <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, is there anything else closing sort of um, statements we want to say about you know diamonds are forever? What do we think about the end of Connery's run? I, I think I think it was a bit of a damp squib, to be honest. Um, you know, there were some good parts, but I think I think diamonds are forever. I think I, I think he, he's. Uh, I think. You only give twice was actually probably a better movie. Diamonds, yeah, Diamonds I think, Forever. I think there was a notable difference in this performance. You know, I think that he could have come straight back out and said, "This is why you wanted me as Bond," but it almost seemed like it didn't matter as much to him. You know, it it didn't mean. Um, you know, the I think the um, I don't know. It just seems it seemed like a bit of a departure, Diamonds Forever, from from the. Um, from the sort of action we'd seen in the first sits, um, it seemed very grand- grounded. Um, although I did enjoy the uh, little chase involving the moon buggies. I guess so. I mean, you know, not absolutely every one they make can be completely knockout and like the best film ever. But you know, it's um, it had its moments, didn't it? You know, it's still a decent film. It's not really the same now, is it? Because of sort of Netflix and everything. But you were still chuffed when it came on the telly at Christmas when you were little, like you know. I remember watching, you know, Diamonds Forever was actually one of the first ones I seen on telly as a kid. It, it was a one, it was a Connery one. It was usually that one on Goldfinger. They they play around with him quite a lot. And and back when I was a kid, you only had three, you only had three TV channels, and the Bond film would always be on ITV. Yeah, they always yeah. had the rights, didn't they? You know. Yeah, and it was all, it'd always be on Christmas Day after the Queen's speech. <laughs> um, <laughs> quite apt. And and it'd always be competing with The Great Escape on BBC. Another bit of trivia that you probably know: um, James Bond was the name of an author on a book and book on a book 
book on it was, birds. It was a, a book, book about it was a book about birds. It was it was a, yeah, which um, a as book. far as I'm aware, I think Ian Fleming is on record somewhere of saying um, it just seemed like a really simple English strong name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I think yeah. you know. I think um, yeah. I think he was probably also thinking about money as well, such as bonds and stuff like that. Um, Anyway, Live and Let Die, the introduction of Roger Moore. Um, yeah, um, something I was thinking about was like, I don't know, in a way, would you call it a sort of, I don't want to say like, maybe not in the strictest sense, it, it was almost like a soft reboot of the film series in a way. No, because he's, he's, he's the same character. He's, he's introduced the same character. I think, it, you know, one thing that struck me about Live and Let Die is it didn't seem to be written for Roger Moore. It could almost have been a Connery film. Um, in the way it was written, the way the character was written, um, you know, because I don't, I don't think you actually got a true Roger Moore Bond film until The Man with a Golden Gun, um, in terms of uh, characters more, you know, sort of like a cartoonish take on the role. Uh, because in, in Living at Die is quite a serious, savage and brutal Bond, you know, um, and I think I think the most memorable moments about Living at Die was the uh, it kind of a he was 73, so basically there was a lot of black exploitation movies coming out, and given that I kind of rolled that crest sort of thing. It did, you know, yeah. With, you know, with all it, the voodoo. Um, no, it, it was a very interesting film, you know. Um, I always think of it as the one of Roger Moore's that I probably least enjoy on a personal level, but I think that, um, especially because we'd seen a different James Bond in George Lazenby by that point. So I think that there was a lot of pressure on Roger Moore to think, right, are we actually going to get anyone else other than Connery who can play it? Well, to be honest, yeah. I think I think they actually wanted Roger Moore for on Her Majesty's Secret Service, but I think it was a similar situation to what they had with Pierce Brosnan later on. Because they wanted Brosnan right. to they wanted Brosnan instead of Dalton, but Brosnan couldn't do it because he was uh, under contract to to continue playing Remington Steel. And I think they had a similar situation with Roger Moore in 69 as he was still under contract to play the Saint. Right. So I think, so I might be wrong, but I think that's what happened and that's why they opted for uh, Lazenby. Um, But yeah, you know, I I, I love love Living at Die. I think it's probably, you know, next to The Spy Who Loved Me, I think it's probably one of the best, uh, best Roger Moore films. In in a sense, we we have got some iconic men, you know, moments when when he drives a double double decker bus under the bridge and takes the top off it. Um, I think it ushered in. Um, I think what's really important, something you picked up on when you said, you know, there was a lot of exploitation films and stuff like that. Um, what was really smart about the film is that it it had a distinctly different feel than the sixties. You know, it, it almost it ushered in the era of the seventies really really well. And that's what all the Bond films have done. They've always embraced the time in which they were made quite well. Mm-hmm. And um, also quite badly when you get it wrong when you get to the uh, get to the Timothy Dalton films. Um, but yeah, I I I I actually liked uh, Living at Die. I thought thought the, I thought the villain was quite the villains were quite memorable. Um, it was I, something a bit different, wasn't it? I yeah. think it, 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 it was something that um, they were almost like the lowest key villains that they'd done. It was almost like a personal vendetta. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I also, you know, I think, I think also, I kind of, I kind of wanted the villains to win. Yeah, that's that what film. I mean. It, <laughs> it was just, it, it wasn't as defined, was it, uh, as like, right, someone's going to blow up the world, so this has to be done. It was sort of, um, it was like, oh, rather than 
it's James Bond versus the world. It was almost like I was in a spot of bother. <laughs> yeah, it's like James Bond versus um, versus street level drug dealers sort of thing. Yeah, it, was um, I think it was. Again, I always admire films where the writers or directors or whatever they, they make the film that they want to make. You know, and I think that's something that's deserves a lot of credit when you when you take bold decisions with such a massive character and such a massive franchise. It's nice to say it established Bond for the seventies, but also I also feel it it was actually one of the first Bond films to try and do something different um after after on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Um and and then and then in then you had the man with the golden gun, which kind of gone back kind of went back to the to the to the traditional farming or somewhat. Um, but yeah, that's one of my favourite ones. To be honest with you, is um, Man with the Golden Gun, and I think some of it it might just be because I watched it so much when I was a kid. But um, I just remember being absolutely blown away by seeing like this guy Francisco Scaramanga on the screen, and um, you know at that point, like everyone else, you know that was Dracula, but he was a Bond yeah. film, and. Um, it, and it and you a, you sat it, there you sat there watching Scaramanga on screen and you're thinking, oh my god, I didn't know vampires had three nipples. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> um, and also um, Nick Knack was again, you know, really, really, really iconic as well. Mm-hmm. And um, also, um, you know, another iconic closing moment where he, where he sort of like uh, where Nick Knack comes after Bond when when Bond thinks his mission's complete and that and he's you know, getting his bit of a uh, bit of action with the uh, with the lady friend that he's made along the night, along the way. Uh, exactly, yeah, you know. and I think it's the first one where we saw. Again, I might, I might have, to, I might be wrong, but I think it's the first one where we saw a recurring character as well for the first time in J.W. Pepper. You know, the sheriff, the sheriff. Yeah, because it, didn't he turn up again in? Um, yeah, I think he might be viewed to. Oh, God, yeah. Um, I'll check it out, but he definitely he's definitely in um, more than one of them. Yeah, I think he turns up again in the um, in 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 the Spy Who Me. I'm not sure. No, he wouldn't been wouldn't have been Spy Who Me. I think he might. I think he might have been in in one of the Connery ones. No, I don't think. Jay, yeah. I think he was in two. I think it was Man with a Golden Gun that he turned. It is. Yeah. Yeah. He's in two films that are consecutive that run yeah, so, one after the other. I think. So basically, you know. did you did that dined and the man with the golden gun. Yeah, basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, one of one of the things I remember man with the golden gun for was the um, was the car jump. Do you remember the car jump with the where it kind of goes round the helter skelter and does and flips over it's in like the air. Yeah, yeah. And and man's yeah. We created that in um, I think one of the Grand Theft Auto games. You know. Well, apparently that stunt um, had never been done before. That movie it was actually it was actually specifically taken made for that movie, and it actually set you know set the record. It, there was a lot of physics, and um, I remember watching documentary about it, and they were working out the physics of it. You know, it was such a complicated stunt they needed computers to work out the physics of of how they're going to sort of like flip the car in midair and have it land. I'm not surprised, mate. I mean, it's um, a it's a serious bit of. So, you know, Bond, it's, Bond's always been bold, hasn't it? You know, there was no messing around. They wanted to do something that hadn't been done. And um, it was an awesome stunt, really was. Brilliant. He, he was. It's sort of like, uh, it's, it's, it's one of the memorable moments. As well as the, uh, the final duel between um, between Scaramanga and, and Bond, you know, with, with Nick Knack interfering. 
And also, um, it was Maud Adams' first um, Bond film. Um, she had Nate return um, later to do Octopussy, playing a different character. That's true, mate. If you're wondering as well, it's just it's just popped into my head out of nowhere. If you're wondering where else you've seen Sheriff J.W. Pepper, he's the other police officer in Ian Superman 2. Oh, uh, yeah. He's also the other one. He's the one that what there's two police officers, a big one and a, and a skinny one. And um, he's the one who tries to shoot General Zod. That's him, yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, but obviously a different policeman because I don't think uh, I don't think Superman and Bond exist in the same universe. <laughs> I don't, it would do be funny. It would be funny if they did. But <laughs> yeah, James Bond with kryptonite bullets, you know. Yeah. Um. Um. Yeah. So like. Uh, yeah, Bond with kryptonite bullets. I, I can't see that somehow. And then, despite who loved me, um, I would say, you know, that's one of the truly iconic Bond films, I think. You know, it, it really is, isn't it? You know, it, oh, it, definitely. Um, you know. It, it's a pivotal one, that film. That, that, you know, things were, you know, Roger Moore had two films behind him at this point. Um, and I would say that is one of, like, you know, I think it's one of the Bond films for me. That it's, so it's, much... it's actually the natural successor to The Man with the Golden Gun, in a way. Um but also, it's got a slightly more nuanced plot as well. It kind of it kind of does what Thunderball did did a little bit, but you know adds nuance to the cartoony antics that we've seen in 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 uh, in, in the previous ones as well. Yeah, again, there's, there's perhaps you know I don't want to say less action, but it's not an all-out romp, is it? You know, it's more about sort of how the spy world works and stuff. You know. Mm. Well, I'd say yes and no, but it's also a, also has a cartoony element, such as his Union Jack parachute at the beginning, and that's big skiing sequence. Um, and it also it's the first film since On the Majesty's Secret Service. One thing we didn't mention about On the Majesty's Secret Service is he gets married in the end to Tracy, and she gets shot by by Spectre, by Blofeld and and Spectre as um, as they're going away. Um, now. In the following film, Diamonds Forever, it's not mentioned that he was married. You know, there doesn't seem to be any emotional carry carry on from that, and and we and we get that in the Spy Who Loved Me when 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 the um, when the agent that he ends up you know working with mentions mentions that he was married once, and and he kind of cuts her off and says that'll be enough of that sort of thing. Sort of thing. Yeah, no, it, it does. Uh... I think that at that point, you know, nobody was interested in James Bond having a relationship, really, unfortunately. That, those, this was someone who was on screen to kick people's heads in and to save the world. And, you know, Bond wasn't allowed to be three-dimensional at that point. You know, mm. nobody wanted that. Everybody just wanted. And I think perhaps that's down to, you know, if you look at like the height of the Cold War, in the middle of the 70s, People needed, or people wanted, whether they needed it or not, it was a different debate. There seemed to be a, a sort of craze for like they were just defined heroes and villains. You know, they're the Russians, we're the Western. That's it. You know, it, it was there was no in between kind of thing at that point, really. And you also got the, uh, you know, certainly with Connery's Bond and, and Roger Moore's Bond, um, a lot of the situations he ends up in with women, um, and he grabs women and just sort of like ruthlessly snogs them irrespective of whether they, they're interested in, in, in that or not. Um, in, in this day and age, Connery and, and Roger Moore's Bond would be done for date rape. 
Well, yeah, I mean, it's pretty sinister stuff, you know. It's, um, <laughs> it's, it's crazy. It's pretty horrible stuff, really. Like, well, there's, no, there's no point sugarcoating it. Um, it's, it's, it's distasteful and it's sort of wrong and it's um, very much a product of its times, you know. Yeah, it's 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 just it's just so weird when you look at them and and you look at look at them with today's social mores in place, um, and it, it just so like um, I think I think watching the Bond films down through the ages so like um, it's a good way of gauging how 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 far we've come socially I think um, in terms of um, attitudes towards women and attitudes towards race. Yes, good point. Yeah, no, mm. definitely. There are, um, I mean, if you watch the development of all those things, there were clearly things, you know, um, that became unacceptable that had to change, you know, and, and unfortunately, they did. But yeah, um, the, the spy who loved me, um, you know, Ringo Starr's wife, isn't it? Um, <laughs> forget, is it Barbara Back, I think it was, was, was played the uh, main... Main, main sort of like Bond um, love interest in that definitely um, yeah and also the white the, the Lotus Esprit Turbo as well coming out of the water that's um, yeah the, the world's first submersible car yeah um, I mean we could almost do a whole sort of separate podcast couldn't we yeah. about um, you know iconic Bond cars but there's so many different ones but I think but there's one one character you're forgetting and he turns up in the following film as well and he's probably one of the first uh, Bond villains to do t- uh, other than Blofeld to do more than one film but in this instance it's the same actor that does it both time um, and that's Richard Keel as Jaws oh not forgotten about Jaws don't worry about that yeah. Um, yeah and it was amazing because he had his own little arc over those two films he did I mean he went from complete badass um, and 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 then then in Moonraker he falls in love and all of a sudden, all of a sudden he's civilised <laughs> yeah it was um, it's, it's an awesome little thing that isn't it and they sort of seem to try something different with that, you know. They seem to. I, I, I guess I've always thought that the James Bond films are only the only continuity that matters is the same actor making the films normally, you know. Um, they're all their own sort of like take on it. Um, but he did, yeah. And then, um, of course, I guess that leads us on to Moonraker. Unless there's anything that's crucial that you know you think we've forgotten to say about the Spy Who Loved Me. Well, there was actually a. Carolyn Munro was inspiring of me. She played the villain's girlfriend, and she she's a person flying a helicopter that gets shot out of the sky by the uh, Lotus Spree. Um, and I've actually met uh, Carolyn Munro. Really nice person. Um, and um, now she's got a few interesting stories to tell because she 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 she'd um, acted alongside Christopher Lee in in a. Um, in a Dracula film, I think she did Dracula in 1972 AD or something. And uh, I remember her talking to me about it at the time, and she said that um, that was one, you know, the Dracula film was one of the first films, you know, to, to actually utilise contact lenses and all right. very hard contact lenses. And Christopher Lee went, you know, to make his eyes look red, he used to wear these contact lenses. And, um, and, and she said that they were notoriously painful for him, sort of thing. But yeah. Carolyn Monroe was the uh, was the villain in that film, and um, she 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 was she she was kind of like the uh, pinup girl of the nineteen seventies. She was kind of like U- the UK's answer to to Farrah Fawcett, I think, in a sense. Um, but yeah, then but then moving on to a uh, Moonraker with Doctor Holly Goodhead. I mean, Moonraker was incredible, you know. That that was a huge leap to put Bond in space, you know. That was um, I'm convinced that that. 
you know, they sort of tried to tap into the success of Star Wars in 1977 and stuff. You know, well, actually, um, if you if you watch the final closing sequence of um, of the Spy Who Loved Me. It said uh, James Bond will return in For Your Eyes Only because they, they were going to make For Your Eyes Only next, but then because of the success of Star Wars, they made Moonraker, so you're right. Right, okay, yeah, yeah. Um, no, I, remember, I do remember, I have seen that, yeah, no, I do remember that. Um, but Moonraker, I, I, um, Moonraker was actually, up until the Daniel Craig era, Moonraker was the only Bond film that I'd ever actually seen at the cinema. Oh, um, right, okay. Um, and I was about nine at the time, and I couldn't speak. I couldn't. I couldn't say it properly. I'd say like Jonathan Ross. I'd say Moonwaker. Yeah. I'd say, have you seen Moonwaker? <laughs> um, it's really interesting though that um, if you actually look on Wikipedia, you know, it's actually classed as the first spy-fi film. You know, all the other ones it says it's a spy film, but it's sort of largely seen as you know. It, yeah, it's, it's, probably because it's, they actually it's went different from all the others, isn't it? Yeah, right. You've got laser watches and stuff like that, and you've got these viruses, and all of that is sort of science fiction elements. But um, I think it did make a lot of things possible like that, and it was also a very smart move to make that film and release it then. And I think it really showed you the commercial nous of the people that were behind the films mm. to actually change it and to make the spy who loved me. Um, sorry for your eyes only. After that, you know, that was a pretty clever move, really. I remember Moonrake coming out, though, as a kid. I remember being really excited for it and all for it because at the same year, they released Buck Rogers in the 25th century in the cinemas as well. Um, so we had that coming out in the cinemas as well as Moonraker. And, um, you know, and it was also, you know, we'd, we'd had Star Wars in 77, which came out the same year as The Spy Who Loved Me. And we're waiting for the we're waiting for the next Star Wars film, The Empire Strikes Back, which wouldn't hit till nineteen eighty one. So, you know, we, the the audience was there for 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 song like space space adventure and Moonraker, as you say, rightly it capitalised on that. But also, didn't you did you know that um, when Glenn Larson um, redid Butt Rogers for Butt Rogers in twenty fifth century, he basically um, took his inspiration for the character of Butt Rogers. You know his iteration about Rogers. It's all the inspiration for it from James Bond. I didn't know that, though, but it doesn't surprise me, though. Because the you know, if you remember in the uh, but Rogers series in the seventies and early eighties when it when it would have aired here, um, but Rogers was very much like a spy. You know, in in space, you know, it had that sort of like formula sort of thing. Also, the Six Million Dollar Man was sort of like uh, inspired by Bond as well. You know. I think the more you think, the more so many things are, you know. But Moon Moonraker, yeah, you're right. Um, we also had a pretty pretty event memorable villain as well with Hugo. Was it Hugo Drats? Yeah, I think what was what's awesome about Moonraker is they knew they could only do that once, really, and it stands out on its own. And it was really, really bold and really brave. And I guess it was quite outlandish. And you know, some people say perhaps it took things a little bit too far, and maybe it did. But um, I always just remember watching it when I was a kid, just thinking, wow, this is incredible. James Bond's in space. What is going on, you know? Okay, well, if you can hear any little bit of a noise in the background, can you hear that? Yeah. Uh, it's basically my cat. She's playing with this flippity fish thing that I've got her, and, <laughs> and it flaps about. So that's that's what's going on. Um, she's um, she, she's She's been very, very much inspired by our... 
by our nice and skill theme, and she's taking it on herself to kill a fish. But it's not a real fish. Don't tell her that. <laughs> um, but yeah, Moonraker was bold. And then and then we got the next one, For Your Eyes Only, which is probably one of my least favourite Bond films. It was very much down-to-earth one from Moonraker, really. You know, I think mm. that perhaps, perhaps it had a bit of a... Um, perhaps it was unfair timing that you had this, like, epic, almost galactic adventure in, you know, um, Moonraker... And then you had a film that was very much back down to earth and for your eyes only, and was probably a bit more of a subdued plot in some, in some ways. You oh, know, for, like, for your eyes only, I quite like that. I quite like for your eyes only, to be honest with you. And I like I like the later the latter era of um, Roger Moore films. Mm, uh, actually, Moonraker is actually the last Roger Moore film I like. I you know I didn't like the latter era of the Roger Moore films. Um, I thought Octopus was quite ridiculous. Um, and uh, a view to kill was, uh, you know, cringeworthy because. Uh, oh, I but this is where we're going to disagree massively. View to kills, like up there, are my favourite ones. I think view to kills, an absolutely epic sort of awesome movie. But you know, I guess people this people differ, which is fine. No, I just found it cringeworthy because those last those last two films, Octopus and A View to Kill. Um, the 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 effects of aging were really showing on Roger Moore. So every time he every time he embraced one of these younger women, it kind of felt a bit cringeworthy. <laughs> I just yeah. think he was an amazingly iconic bad guy, and um, you know, Max Sorin was just an awesome um, baddie, and um, it just felt—I don't know—for me, it's the archetype from what a Bond, what that type of Bond film should be in the mm-hmm. vein of Goldfinger and Man with the Golden Gun. If you've got a baddie that's in his own. You know, like a bit like Elliot Carver, Jonathan Price was in Tomorrow Never Dies. Yeah. It's just um yeah. But I think I think you know, Grace I think, I think Grace Jones was pretty memorable. A lot of this to do with, you know, that was massive when I was a kid, you know, it's one of the first ones I ever saw and, and you know, whenever we were being like seven or eight, it was only out a few years after I was born, so it will have been very fresh then. And I think that there are that's a massive part of it for me that I'm mm. more than happy to admit that that element of nostalgia probably sort of gives me rose tinted glasses a little bit. It's probably it's probably similar to how um, how Moonraker and uh, and Aspiring Love Me seem to me because yeah, I, I was possibly, I was yeah. I was about seven years old when Aspiring Love Me came out and um, I would have been about nine when Moonraker came out sort of thing. Uh, but but if you you know the last the last three of Roger Moore's films, um, you know I, I felt they were very hit and miss. I thought Octopussy had its moments. Um, I, I wasn't mad on Octopussy to be honest with you. I would agree with you on that. Um, um, yeah, I thought Beauty of the Kill was a decent way to end his run. You know, I thought it was a big film. It was a bold film, and I think some of the set pieces in that were what made it truly memorable for me you know mm. the fight on the Golden Gate Bridge and like the building turning into an air balloon and, and also like also um, you know it's also the film that featured the third Avenger as well because you were um, in Golden in Goldfinger you had Pussy Galore played by Honor Blackman who was um, who was the first kick-ass babe from the Avengers and then in on Her Majesty's Secret Service you had um, what's her name now uh, Diana Rigg Playing Tracy, the uh, woman that he marries, and then in View to a Kill, you had you had um, you had Patrick McNee, John Steed from the Avengers. So. Um, definitely, mate. No, all those iconic British actors. Um, I think what's something that does bring to mind about View to a Kill, 
Um, you know, it is sort of one of my favourites, as I've unashamedly said. Um, it's an important element of that film is that it, 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 it really commented on how we're moving into the computer age in a way that no other Bond film had done in quite the same mm-hmm. way to that point. You know, it, it, um, the whole story of like, Silicon Valley and stuff like that. And um, it was a turning point in the franchise for me, I think. And, and Matt Zorin was basically the template for, for Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. <laughs> Yeah, kind of. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree with that in, in, in some ways. You know, it was. Um, I think it, it wasn't that we hadn't had technology in Bond films before. Of course, we had it. It was that you know, for example, like Moonraker and all that. That the big thing was still the space race. Even though the moon landing was in 1969, it still riffed on sort of like the space race and stuff like that. Whereas this. You know, it was um, another example, how I said, of, of Bond films are always, right up until the modern day, very, 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 very tuned into what's happening in the world at the time. Mm-hmm. So moving moving on, uh, I think we've pretty much gone over the last three Roger Moore films. So we'll move on to Dalton's first outing, The Living Daylights. Um, that's actually my favourite Timothy Dalton outing as Bond, his first um, um, yeah, the way it goes with me with Timothy Dalton is I love The Living Daylights and I think it's one of the best Bond films. And License to Kills, no, crap. License to Kills, yeah. Through, I think that's when there started being a lot of production problems. We've talked about this off sort of audio, off air earlier times. Um, so perhaps it was a bit unfair. I don't think Timothy Dalton did a great deal wrong in License to Kill. I think that film was just, you know, it was, it was riddled with... Um, production problems and stuff like that. To be honest, there was also a lot of stuff going on with I, Hollywood at the time as well. Also, I think um, what I think what happened is by the time by the time you got to a view to a kill and living day nights and license to kill, um, Hollywood um, was making you know these outlandish, crazy action movies with uh, Stallone and and Schwarzenegger and stuff like that. Yeah, and, because and, some of that same problem is um, it's part of why like Star Trek Five was the same that was round about the same time and that suffered from some of the same things for the same reason i think you know yeah, but but i think i think basically um um bond was was going through a bit of an identity crisis once once you got to a uh, view to a kill um because view to a kill to me felt like um any number of other action movies that would have been released around about the same time about a drugs cartel you know yeah, it didn't, I mean, didn't uh, feel like a bond film I guess, like, what's important about Licence to Kill? I mean, Living Daylights, I absolutely adore. I think it's awesome. and um, But I think I'll probably say things as they pop into my head about Licence to Kill, just because I've got less to say, and if I don't, I'll forget. I think what is important about Licence to Kill is um, is sort of... It's an important character development that we get to see him go rogue, which we've never seen quite in the same way up until mm. that point, you know. Also, I think we, I think, I think Nicence Kills actually the first Bond film where we get given, you know, some fairly strong female characters that could could quite easily kick James Bond's ass. It's um, a pretty dark film, you know. You know, but I think I think Nicence Kill was the first. You know, because he meets sort of a CIA agent, and and she's um she's quite 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 an adept um, agent, and she's also she doesn't sort of like fawn all over him like like the others do. I think it's the um, only one that had sort of semi nudity in it as well, isn't it? I think there was bare breasts in um, License to Kill, which you've never seen in any other film. Yeah, don't don't remember that. I'm gonna have to watch it again now. I think so. I think it was quite. Um, it was a much darker theme than that, but um, and also, I think it's important did, to mention. Didn't they with kill? Daylight. 
Didn't they kill Fiunit's lighter in license king as well? Yeah, he got fed to a shark, yeah. Yeah, right right in the beginning. So Which, there you go, all these all these brutal. people basically that's why he, that's why he goes rogue, yeah. He's like, right, yeah. you know, F you, you've killed my friend now. I don't care what you say, the British government. Yeah. I'm not having it. So all these people that are criticizing um criticizing No Time to Die for killing Phoenix Lighter, shut up, because he was dead already. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I'm pretty sure he probably gets killed. He probably probably died and never sang ever again. I've only seen it about three times, but he probably dies in that as well. No, he didn't. Um, he didn't. That was the first. That was the first and only film up until No Time to Die that Phoenix Knight had died in. Um, or he might have died and never sang ever again because that's not even in Bond canon. But the the yeah. thing is, Phoenix Phoenix Knight is another actor. Um, that that is another character that was played by various different actors. But what what was unique about Nice Kill is they got the same actor to reprise it from 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 the pre from his previous appearance. In that yeah. they got David Hedison to to do Phoenix Lighter again. Um, so so um, David Hedison and um, also the guy that plays him in the um, Daniel Craig movies are the only actors to have actually played the character more than once. So that's a bit of trivia for you. <laughs> trivia. Um, I mean, at that point, 1987, they wanted Pierce Brosnan, but he was Remington Steel, you know. So Timothy Dalton was the second choice, but um, yeah. I, I thought he was an awesome Bond in. in um, Actually, mate, you know, View, View to Kill was 1985. Sorry, I meant the Living Daylight. Did I say View to a Kill? Yeah. Well, you, yeah. I'm sorry, Living Daylight. Yeah. 1987. Yeah, in, in 1987, when they made the Living Daylight, they wanted Pierce Brosnan even at that point. But he wasn't available. He was tied into Remington Steel, so the gig went to Timothy Dalton. And um, I think The Living Daylights is an awesome movie, you know, for loads of reasons. I just think as a standalone film, it was a particularly strongly paced film and a really decent action movie. Yeah, I love the opening sequence where he rescues a musician and, and the ride across <coughs> the border on the uh, in, in in her channel case. <laughs> I thought that was brilliant. <laughs> yeah, there's that. Um, there's that bit basically where it's really it's some really good characterization of the James Bond's character by mm. Pierce Bro- by Pierce Bros by Timothy Dolvin yeah. in the Living Daylights. For example, he basically says, "I'm not killing women in it," you know. Yeah, well, think to be honest, I think Timothy Dalton when he when he took on the role, he he um, he was like um, he, he basically paved the way for you know. For, for Daniel Craig's characterization, whereas a plot of uh, on Her Majesty's Secret Service kind of paved the way for that Bond being more nuanced and vulnerable in in the storyline. Um, I think I think uh, Dalton's portrayal of Bond paved the way for for for, um, for Craig's portrayal in the sense that Dalton actually based his portrayal more on the Bond in the book. He was he wasn't as much of, of a womanizer, was he? Yeah. He wasn't schmoozy. He wasn't. Um, he was a much sort of more sort of he, he got that part of he managed to depict being reserved and holding his cards close to his chest at the same time as being vulnerable you know which Timothy mm. Dalton did an awesome awesome job of for me I, th- I, thought, I thought Timothy Dalton was actually the first truly cold-blooded Bond in a sense yeah you know, and for all the ruthless that weren't that good you know License to Kill it was a decent character study and I think in a production that sort of was riddled with trouble and it just seemed to have a curse around it. I think the one saving grace of Licence to Kill is that Timothy Dalton did, did a decent job in that movie, you know? Mm. And, uh, you know, it's almost a shame that he's, you know, that he only got to do the two films. I would have liked to have seen Dalton carry on for a while. 
because it would have been interesting to see what he did. And it's a pity that the that 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 the living dying dying lights is the is the last film we did um, and the Bond franchise. It is, yeah. It's um, it's a great East versus West story as well in a changing climate. Mm. And now we're on to the uh, topic of Goldeneye and Pierce Brosnan's first film. Uh, I'll let you start, Ben, because I think you you've got quite a lot to say about this one. I think it's um, an amazing film, first and foremost. As you quite rightly say, you know, it's an important um, the first Bond film for any actor when it's a new Bond is, is always important. I think. And um, on a personal note, I was was it ninety four or ninety five? It came out ninety five, I think. I think it was ninety five. Yeah. Yeah, so I would have been like 12 or 13, so um, I'd watched the, the other Bond films and watched videos and stuff of, of others, my dad had showed me them, but, um, and I went to, the, I was taking, I did see Living Daylights at the cinema, but I was only like seven, so that was really the first Bond film I saw as, um, and remember, and sort of like the build-up and getting excited for it, you know, I was old enough, I was 12, to fully remember it, but um, at the time it didn't mean much to me, but. Well, you know, looking back now, I think it's sort of, um, it was a very interesting premise um, in that the world had changed by then. Um, and it was the last film that sort of managed to half exist as like the Cold War espionage between Russia and the West. But it couldn't, it didn't, it couldn't just do it the way it was done because the world had changed, you know, and it explored sort of some of the power vacuums, I guess, and stuff of... Um, yeah, that's what I was just going to say. You did it some the power vacuum that was left behind because um, what was left behind was basically uh, Sean Bean's Cossack character, you know, and um, and and um, KGB. It kind of it kind of dissembled into um, in sort of like mobster gangs in a sense, hasn't it? Really, hasn't it really? It did, me, Yeah, I think, it, and it was and it was interesting, an interesting way to look at it, and quite forward thinking in a lot of ways because. I guess for a spy franchise like that, I know The Living Daylights and stuff, not every single film was Emerson Russians, but that was really the whole premise of, of sort of what the Bond franchise started from and Ian Fleming wrote it. And so once that ended in sort of early 1989, 1990, um, the Cold War sort of, you know, as it was, came to an end. It, it, it was a bit of a challenge, I think, for, for Bond in some ways. And this showed that the franchise... It was probably really the very first franchise of the modern era, the very first Bond film of the modern era in the franchise, I would say, in some ways. Um, you know, because all Roger Moore ones, right up until his last one, sort of, I don't know, they still half exist. The Cold War was still going on, and I know that neither of Timothy Dalton's particularly dealt with that. Um, but it, it definitely, even though there was only six years since, six years between Living Daylights and... Goldeneye, 1995, it was a completely different feel and it very much felt a film. It was that modern that the BMW Z3 that they had in it was only in test production, so that's mm. why you didn't see a lot of guns on it and stuff like that. I don't know if you know that. Yeah, but, I did uh, know that, yeah. Um, I think another interesting thing about it is um, that the first um, of the... Of the of the original Ronald Bond movies, I'm talking Sean Connery, Roger Moore, that, that run... The first one to really actually kind of dip its toes into the Cold War, in a sense, was the spy you love me when he was up against that rival spy and he ended up, yeah. he ended up working with her. Now, if you remember in that film, she had her, her, she had her M character that she was reporting up to. Yeah. 
Now, if you remember, I remember that character actually carrying over into several of Roger Moore films, and we also seen him towards the end of towards the end of the Living Daylights, and I think we also seen him a little bit in A View to a Kill. Part of the, sure. the counterpart, basically the head of the um, the head of the head um, of the the head of the KGB. KGB, I guess, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, but we we kind of saw M's counterpart throughout the um, the, the last few Bond, the last few Roger Moore movies, and both the Timothy Dalton movies, mm. and and it's kind of interesting how we we didn't see him in Goldeneye in a sense. Yeah, I think it's sort of. Um... I guess like the KGB was no more by that point, was it really? So it was just, you know, I guess there's something that's equivalent to it, but it um, it, it just, um, yeah, I guess by that point, it just, it had to do something a bit different, I think, didn't it, which it did. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I like the line at the very beginning of it where, you know, M goes to Bond, she's just newly ensconced in, in, in her office and the, uh, she pretty much says him, to him that he's a blunt instrument and is a is a is a misogynistic byproduct of the Cold War, <laughs> and and all that. That line's that line brilliantly sets up the whole film. Um, but there's also um, the other line where he meets uh, Zenia on a top um, oh. after after having challenged her to that race in the BMW. Um, yeah. You know she she you know he he he, he spots her accent. And um, you know, and she counters to it, and it goes, "Oh, I used to drop in from time to time, you know, when he, he sort of thing." So, shot in of, and out, he says. I think, I think it's yeah, shot in and out. Yeah, you shoot in and out. There was a lot of a uh, there was a lot of fun dialogue to to his past adventures, and you know, and, and past exploits in the Cold War, which were cleverly you know used. And also, it was the first time. I think it was the first film where we'd seen the villain. Um, start off life as a um, as kind of a, an MI6 agent before betraying MI6. Yeah, no, definitely. It was a very um, a very bold plot, I think. You know, and um, you know, for what it was, nine ninety five. We, you know, I'm not saying we didn't have any complex villains, but we didn't have anywhere near as many as we do now. And it, and it really was a decent villain. Um, I just want to expand a little bit on what you just said because you know, obviously you could read that as a throwaway sort of double entendre or, you know, a bit of a punt. But I think it's a really good point about you saying that. The two things, actually. First of all, um, you know, I'm saying you're a relic of the Cold War and you're a misogynist dinosaur. And then Zenia on the top um, saying those things. It's very, very clever because essentially what it's done is it's more or less a fourth wall-breaking thing to say to the audience things are not going to be the same anymore. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, it is that, that that was you know the, the the very fact that you know we now had a woman as M, that that broke the fourth wall immediately, and that that kind of let us know right there there and then that this was a modern Bond film. It did, yeah, and um, you know whereas we didn't get quite a sort of the same as we, same kind of uh, Money Penny as we did with Naomi Harris. Money Penny's role had changed a little bit as well. You know, it wasn't quite as um, you know, she was a bit more forthright and stuff like that. You know, I certainly wouldn't like to say it was a more feminist because it wasn't, you know, but it was 1995, you know, so it was, um, which is, you know, almost 30 years ago. But, you know, you have to look at things in context, don't you? And there was certainly, it was certainly a world of difference away from sort of Lois Maxwell of the 60s and 70s, I would say. Yeah, the flirtation with Lois Maxwell was um, always... 
it was always sort of like uh, intonating sort of thing, but not really going as far as I could have done. Uh, but I think part of that was because um, I think Lois Maxwell, she was actually older than Conry when, when, when she took on the role of Money Penny. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was always Bond could basically, she was always waiting for him and crying and he could pick her up and put her down. But Samantha Bond, Money Penny, wasn't like that really, you know. Yeah, I I actually loved the flirtation between between uh, her version of Money Penny and 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 Brosnan's Bond. You know, I, I kind of liked uh, how that relationship played out, and she actually pretty much said to him um, in the end that you can't you can't pick me up and put me down. I'm not like all these other women you, you you're going with sort of thing. There, there, there is something she implies that in 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 one of the films later on down the line. I think definitely, mate, definitely, and. Um... And it's yet another one of, um, you know, Sean Bean not only dies once, but, you know, Sean Bean, who's legendary for dying in roles, manages to die twice in that film. <laughs> I know. That, that, that was actually an impressive feat. Um, it's kind of funny, actually, because I was watching a film with Dominic the other week on a... So I've been streaming movies. Um, you know, you can stream movies and watch them with friends through various on like, apps online and whatnot. Oh, right, like a share party. Yeah, I've been doing a bit of that. And um, we were watching The Martian, and uh, Sean Bean was in that. And I, I, I got, as I actually said, this has got to be one of, the, one, one, one of the first films I've seen Sean Bean in where he hasn't died. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because he doesn't die in the end of that one. He, he retires and starts teaching golf. <laughs> On that um, point, I think it's um, Pierce Brosnan, you know, he, he gave us his introduction to um, basically what started me thinking about this was when he does finally actually kill him at the end. And he says, for England, James, and he says, no, for me. And you see, like, a real sort of bitterness and a real viciousness, you know, and I think that's the first time you'd, you'd really seen that on... Um, I think Pierce Brosnan started to explore the emotional side of the character more than, you know, certainly more than Roger Moore and Sean Connery. Timothy Dalton had sort of tried to do that um, as much as possible. But, you know, nothing quite like Daniel Craig. But, again, you know, sort of masculinity was viewed differently then and, and stuff like that. But he definitely started taking the character in a different direction, I think. And he started making him more of a three-dimensional character, you know? And that, that went on throughout Pierce Brosnan's run, and it sort of started in GoldenEye, really. Yeah, but, you know, to be honest, um, I wouldn't say it was any more or any less vicious than Connery. Connery, Connery was bloody vicious. I think it's basically with Connery. There wasn't, they didn't really have, they couldn't really um, use the same amount of context as they could have used in GoldenEye. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that's true, mate, you know. Because I personally, I still think Connery is one of the viciousest Bonds we've ever had, um, next to Daniel Craig, to be honest. And um, Roger Moore's kind of a wimp, because I was never convinced when Roger Moore was playing it vicious. It didn't convince me. <laughs> um, but GoldenEye's, like, definitely my favourite Pierce Brosnan movie. I think it's... Um, you know, there's so many standout parts to that film, and I think almost 30 years later, it still stands up pretty well. You know, yeah, all right, sort of some of the stuff, but what it did when you look at sort of the last one that we've we already just, um, you know, when we go on to talk about um, what's the last Breeze Brosnan Bond movie? Oh um, God, um, 
Die another day. Die another day, yeah. Would you? Yeah, that just Santa. looks awful. It just looks like bad CGI, but it didn't do that. All the stunts and everything, Goldeneye. There were some really groundbreaking stunts, and not just for the Bond franchise, but for things generally. You know, there were so many things from the opening start to the electromagnetic pulse and all that. Um, they were choreographed and thought out so well and so brilliantly, you know, and they were all mostly still then. Mechanically, you know, that was when CGI was only coming into its own, really, wasn't it? So most of it was done sort of manually with models and stuff like that. I think, to be honest, uh, yeah, um, CGI was kind of beginning in the 80s with... Um... I think they used a bit of CGI in Star Trek for um, yeah, used it a but, bit, but, but I, I think I think what you, I think your point is though, where, where you're coming from is um, the 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 first time they really used any CGI to any extent in a Bond film was probably Dying of a Day. Yeah, I think what I mean is that made you know they, they took it too far with that and it looked bad. But in Goldeneye, all the stunts were so well thought out and they just looked huge um, because they were all physical stunts as opposed to visual ones almost you know if that makes sense yeah it, it does it does yeah. it wasn't like um i don't know it wasn't about things disappearing or stuff like that it was sort of um also i, I did go to school with um, a lad whose um uncle worked on was one of the stuntmen on that movie yeah so i just thought i'd get that in there that's one of my claims to fame yeah um, i think um i think the winner of the uh, tv's gladiators was a was a stunt woman on um, on 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 one of the uh, Pierce Brosnan movies as well. It's really important. It's really funny actually when you think about Goldeneye because you think so many things about the film itself, but it was massive for the franchise because that was the start of the modern franchise. And, you know, if that film hadn't made it, Bond could the, the whole thing could have been in a lot of trouble after sort of License to Kill, which you know um, wasn't really taken very well didn't do very well. All the production problems during that film being a six-year gap, it was it was sort of make or break, really. What, what's your take on that, Ian? What do you think? I think it, I think it was. I mean, you know, the, the fact of the matter was, we you know, we'd not had a Bond film. Um, Licence Kill came out in 89, didn't it? So we'd yeah. not had a Bond film at that point in, like, uh, six years. So it's, it's kind of like a similar gap to um, to what, we ha- what we've had with... Um, with, with with this recent with this recent one, you know, similar gap of time we waited. Definitely, mate. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think like a Bond film, you, you didn't know what you were going to get, you know. And and um, I think it was just um, they just got it right and they absolutely nailed it. You know, it was a great film, great music, um, great performances, and it just announced to the world James Bond is back, and that's it. You know. Mm. Even even the theme song Goldeneye it was it felt like a very Bond theme song it, it, I, I kind of think they kind of played it safe with the theme song on Goldeneye uh, by getting Tina Turner to do it uh, but not just that the, the, the actual the way the way the song's structured is a very traditional Bond theme song if you sort of like put it next to something like Goldfinger yeah I think you're right mate and um, I think it's right though in a way I think that's for me personally I think that I can't blame them for having a big name and just going right okay Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it was, it was a good film. I I really enjoyed Goldeneye. It's actually the one Brosnan film that I've seen uh, more more than any, any of the other Brosnan films, to be honest. Yeah, whenever I'm most. doing another watch through, it's always the one that I look forward to the most. You know, one of them. It's mm-hmm. 
I'm just looking at now, mate, and um, yeah, so we had a 60 million budget, which like wasn't massive even. But we were bigger productions then, so you know, it, it was um, it was hugely commercially successful, you know. And I think that I think I think they nailed the advertising. Remember at the time for Bonds, they really, you know, that six year gap in a way. Everybody was pumped up for it, and everybody was really excited. And and whether it was deliberate or not, I don't think it was. I think there was all sorts of reasons it took six years to make one. But sometimes it just shows you that you know, like we've said this about other franchises, doesn't always do you any harm to have a little rest, you know, to read to get people to realise what they're missing and stuff, you know. It, it doesn't at all. I mean, one thing that struck me about GoldenEye, well, it, it kind of launched Bond in video games as well because. Um, during Pierce, during Pierce Brosnan's time as Bond, we had something like about three or four video games with, with Brosnan's Bond in, um, right. starting with GoldenEye on Nintendo 64, which was an un- unmitigated hit. It's probably the it's probably the gold standard in James Bond games. I mean, um, you must be, you must have read my mind over the airwaves, Ian, because there's no way that you can talk about GoldenEye without mentioning the game, um, because you know. It was if it was as big as the film, if not bigger. Eventually, wasn't it? You know that this was before online shooters and everything like that. And um, with the exception of like, I'm not a sort of aficionado of gaming and all that, but you had like Wolfenstein 3D. But that is the sort of multiplayer, the first multiplayer shooting up game that there was, wasn't it? Really on a massive scale, you know, that on a, on a that everybody knew around the world. You know, it, it more than just a Bond game. Goldeneye was is so iconic. You know, the game. Yeah, it was probably the first one that that gained world popularity, like you say, but it wasn't, you know, um, because we didn't really have um, internet gaming wasn't wasn't was barely in its infinite infancy then, sort of thing. And and of course, the Nintendo sixty five, which um, GoldenEye launched on, wasn't connected to the internet. It was just a it was just a gaming console. Um, no, um, exactly, exactly, mate. Yeah, and um, I think. You're right. It wasn't, and I think also, you know, there were there were a couple of two player games, but it was the first game that I knew about where you could have like four people on a split screen like that. You know, I I don't think I'd never seen that done before. Perhaps it was if 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 like you know, I know the internet was sort of going then, and perhaps if you knew what you were doing on a game like Wolfenstein 3D, perhaps you could set it up something similar. But you know, that was just amazing in itself, wasn't it, to be able to plug in four controllers and sort of play with people and stuff. Mm-hmm. But the thing that's so significant about GoldenEye is it's like the only only console game uh, to ever get a remastered for the PC um, because they, they re-released GoldenEye, um, I think it was back in 2012 or something, they did a re-release of it uh, for wow. PC gamers and um, it's still it's still got... Still got quite um, an active uh, community based around it that play it on Steam. Wow, that's a that's a that's a sort of massive thing. Twenty years later, almost. Um, I'm sure. Like, was there not? A, what, was, there was like a dark version of it as well, wasn't there? I can't remember the name of it that they brought out. Probably ten years after, five years after the game, ten years after the game. I'm sure there was a sort of version of the game where you, you, a, a GoldenEye bought a slightly different version. I think. Well, I don't know. It's hard to say whether it's GoldenEye or not because I did about three or four uh, games with Brosnan in, which were released across PC and console. Um, yeah, and, and I think the next game after that, I don't think it was based on the film, was it? I think it was. Was it called 
double agent or something. It, there's something like that. They actually did they did a couple with Brosnan's Bond in, um, although it wasn't voiced by Brosnan, it was voiced by another actor. Um, but they basically did did a few few games with Brosnan's likeness in, and um, and they all had their own plots. They're all you know if you played them through, it was like playing a Bond movie because you, you had your mission briefing from M, and you had missions where he was being being briefed and debriefed throughout throughout the game, sort of thing. And then you had your cutscenes sort of between. So it was like playing a Bond movie. Um, Whereas interestingly enough, they only, they only ever did one game with uh, Daniel Craig's Bond, which was basically uh, it was basically sort of like uh, Casino Royale, and um, the the second Bond movie he did kind of kind of chopped together um, in sort of like hybrid story of both those films. The, um, I, I briefly remember those as well. Um, there was also like that preceded the '97 release of GoldenEye. Um, there was also the GoldenEye handheld game as well, you know, which I think at the time was a pretty big deal because, you know, people still had handheld games and didn't they like, you know, Game Gears and stuff like that. Not as much, but they were still knocking about and stuff. Um, the one that I was thinking of, yeah, it, it, I knew there was another one, but it, it was called Double uh, GoldenEye Rogue Agent. Mm-hmm. One I love to get hold of, and I love them to release it on the PC, uh, but they did a, they did a game... Of uh, from Russia with love, and it was the last project that uh, it was the last James Bond project that Sean Connery was connected to, because they actually used his likeness of Bond in it, and he also had him voicing Bond in it. Wow! And and that was released on the consoles. Um, I don't think it ever got released on the on the PC. But I'd love to see I'd love to see a remaster of that on the PC or released on on modern console because. Yeah, it had its flaws, you know. You know, the, at the time it was released, it kind of got, it kind of got lambasted because they 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 just you know they criticised it for basically being um, too too James Bond because it riffed on all the exploits of all the Bond movies, past and present, and and they, they criticised the story and stuff like that, and and some of the playability of it was a bit wonky. But you know, for for any Bond fan, it was it was a, it was a fun game. It was massive, mate, yeah. I mean, it, um, if you think about it, you know, like, you'll know yourself, Nintendo was Mario, Sega was Sonic, um, and that really changed the face of Nintendo. That's how big the game was, you know. That that was the reason that you bought the Super Nintendo 64, was mainly to play Goldeneye, wasn't it? You know, even more than the Mario game at that time, you know. It, it just, you know, like I say, because... You know, I was like 13, 14 by the time the game came out, a couple of years after the film. It was the thing to have, do you know what I mean? It was only like, if you didn't own, if you, I didn't own it until a few years after, so I was old enough to sort of save up and buy it myself when I was maybe 17 or 18. But, you know, you went to someone's house and played that and it, it was just like the greatest thing ever, you know. Yeah, you would have loved me when you was a kid. So I, I actually had the Nintendo 64 and GoldenEye. Uh, <laughs> when when it first came out, as a matter of fact, and do you know what the funny thing is? It's it's probably the least played with games console I ever owned because the only game I ever played on it was Goldeneye. 
I had yeah, I had to, um, I had a couple of other games on it, but the game I played the most on it was Goldeneye. I mean, it's it's mad. Like the more that I actually think about it, the more I look back and um, more than just you know in terms of Bond, I think it changed. It was it's the first massive sort of film tie-in game that I can remember truly. You know, and it, and it changed. It paved the way for sort of various licensing things. I'm not saying there'd never been games based on films and stuff like that. But I think that it changed the face of it and everyone started to realise the connection, you know, and how much money could be made and stuff. Yeah, to be honest, there were James Bond games before GoldenEye. They did a, they did a game of, uh, I think it was a software company called Ocean. They did a game of the Living Daylights, which was awful because it was basically 8-bit stick, stick figures. And, um, you know, it was like the old old, old side-scrolling side shoot em up sort of thing. I, had the, I remember playing a, a Michael Jackson Moonwalker game with Adam Sager, I think, or something. Yeah, it was that sort of thing, um, only the graphics were a bit shittier than Moonwalker <laughs> because it was sort of like Ocean, it was, came out in 89. Um, it was really in the, in, in the dying twilight years of the, of the home computer boom where you had Spectrum and Commodore 64 and, and, um, and you had the Nintendo... The Nintendo had just sort of like come out at that time in in the UK. Yeah. Um, and but the funny enough, the Nintendo didn't seem to take off fully until sort of like in the nineties. Yeah, I think it, um, it, was, it was. I think we were talking about this a while ago, weren't we? That it, um, basically back then, you know, it, it, the, the order that it went with games was Japan got it first. And then America a couple of years later, and and then the UK and Europe and stuff like that. Whereas now there isn't any waiting time. Everything's because of the internet and shipping and everything. You know, when when the new PlayStation comes out, it comes out everywhere worldwide at the same time, yeah. more or less. But new- back then, you know, there was a sort of like as much as a two year gap between games in Japan and and, and Europe and stuff. Mm. You know. Yeah, the new PlayStation's been out for about a year. It's just that nobody can get older one. <laughs> Um, because uh, the, you know, because all, all you know, all the um, all the resellers are buying them up on eBay and selling them from huge what your cash because the um, the supply of the uh, chipset that goes into the uh, console um, is kind of difficult to get hold of. You know, it's, it's, it's uh, a similar thing that's happening with graphics cards as well. Um, you know, there's the, huge uh, profit potential on them. Because people are getting old, are dying to get older graphics cards. But yeah, there was there was a way. Whereas um, I think now um, the PlayStation was released initially in Japan first. PlayStation Five. It was released in Japan um, about a month or two before it came before it came to the UK. And I think I think um, I think at this point we should get on to the next Pierce Brosnan film. And I think this one's very, very underrated. Um and that's the world is not a go- not enough. We've missed out Tomorrow uh, Never Dies. <laughs> no, because Tomorrow Never Dies came after the World Is Not Enough, didn't it? Oh no, Tomorrow Never Dies, yeah. That's the one I'm thinking about. Yeah. The one with Jonathan Bryce, isn't it? Yeah, the one with Angie Carver. Um who's I think it was um it was they, a, Yeah it it was it was a very 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 current film. Um, you know, I think everybody knew that it was basically Robert Murdoch, wasn't it? it was Rupert Murdoch, Murdoch, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Rupert Murdoch, sorry, not Robert Murdoch. Um, yeah, but yeah. You... Again, it, um, it 
it explored his character a lot more. You know, he he wasn't sort of running around womanizing as much, and um, it, it basically it sort of portrayed him as the tragic sort of hero who can never have a relationship and be happy. And um, you know, Brosnan absolutely nailed that part of it. Um, yeah. I, I, it, it isn't one of my favorites personally. No, I think the part of it's quite quite tugging now because if you think about it, we've had a. In recent years, we've had the, the manipulation of things like Facebook, the Cambridge Analytica sort of thing, and, and stuff like that. It's very ahead of its time. And, yeah, and Tomorrow you. Never Dies, a plot line is about a media mogul who's trying to get get control over all the media so he can fit selections and, and, and uh, do, do you know have the world run run in, in, in a way that he wants it to run, really. You so. definitely say that, like, you know, 24 years later, to, to have written a plot like that and made the film is, is pretty prescient, isn't it? It, it is, and it's sort of like, and I thought Jonathan Price was actually a pretty good thing, but now we're getting on to my uh, second favourite uh, Bond film after Goldeneye, after, after, after my second favourite Brosnan film, which is The World Is Not Enough. Yeah, um, I, 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 I liked The World Is Not Enough more than I liked Tomorrow Never Dies at the time. Looking back... Mm-hmm. I think Tomorrow Never Dies is a very important film, but um, it it was a proper Bond save the world. It was just a classic, wasn't it? The world is not enough. It is, and it's also the first Bond film where you know where where the villains actually actually turns out to be uh, the the person that he's trying to save. As in, it's the woman. The woman's the real villain in that. Um, not you know. Yeah, Sophia Marcel. Yeah. Sophia Marcel. Where where it's sort of like the, uh, the 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 main guy that he's up against, played by Robert Carlyle. Is more is more of like the lead henchman. Um, well, you you think he's the main one, but you realise, don't you? Halfway through, it says that she turns him basically. Yeah, it's really clever the way the way it's done, um, and the way that's all set up. And she puts in a fantastic performance. A very, 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 um, you know, it's um, yeah. I I like um, the world is not enough, and also it's the last film that um, the legendary Desmond Llewellyn is in as well yep and uh, they also paved the way for that in um, because he's don't they introduce John Cleese in that one as um, yeah as, Zed as never sort of yeah. like Zed never um, <laughs> they, they killed the character off after that because they hated it yeah no, no, that, because... that, he was assistant yeah Zed, Zed was introduced in um, The World Is Not Enough mm. and then he then... sort of tried to replace Q in Die Another Day yeah they did use him in Die Another Day but you know um, but yeah, I mean, I remembered the world is not enough. I remember the speedboat sequence at the beginning, which at the time was probably the longest opening sequence of a Bond film pre-credits I'd ever seen. It was a massively exciting, it was huge. Um, it was yeah, it was it was an absolutely awesome um, pre-title sequence. I think one of the best ones that definitely felt um, along the Thames and that as well, because normally they were always in foreign countries aren't they the pre-title sequences mm-hmm. in some exotic location well this was like no the action's happening right here in London you know mm-hmm. but it was just a brilliant sequence um, you know for, for, for the film and um, and I just thought you know I just thought the, 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 the woman who was meant to be the victim turning out to be the real bad, bad you know the real villain and I just thought that was, you know as I said before it was really clever it was really never done heavenly done absolutely and it also ended um that was the final sequence. That was the final arc for Valentin Zukovsky, who was played by Robbie Coltrane in that it film. Was, yeah. Um, and he ends up saving his life in the end, doesn't he? Is the mm-hmm. last thing that he does. Yeah, it's the last thing that he wanted to do as well. Yeah, and that's because Goldie's his nephew, isn't he? And Goldie's a bit of a wrong good. Yeah. 
Um, and then after the world is not enough, we get dying of a day, um, which is which is a cheese fest. It's just such a shame because Pierce Brosnan was awesome and that, and it it had an invisible car, which is just too far for James Bond. <laughs> yeah, I mean, also I also had Madonna in 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 it. You know, she got a great bit of a role in it because she did the soundtrack, which uh, for me to this day is probably one of the worst on the soundtracks ever. Just, I mean, I'm not a big fan of Madonna per se. Don't really like her. I'm not going to make a lie. I'm not going to lie about it. But she just didn't earn a place in that film. You know, it, it was just a. Um, there was. It, it, it just felt like um, I don't know. Um, Die another day. It just felt like they tried to push every single boundary too far at once. Mm. You know, and it felt like as long as we make it all about unbelievable technology. It'll be all right, and that was at the expense of the plot. It's also the CGI was, you know, they 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 overdid the CGI because they tried uh, to do too many things they weren't ready to do. Yeah, they they overdid everything in that film. I mean, I, I like I like bits of it. I mean, I love the I love the bits in the Ice Palace. I like the character of Jin. So I would have liked to have seen her again. That was Hannah yeah, Berry, by the way, the second connection to the X Men sort of thing. Um, but I, I like Jinx's character, and um, and I, and I felt um, it. It did. It kind of, uh, you know, they did emulate the uh, Ursula Andress coming out of the uh, sea with with the Jinx character in Dying Over Day. Well, it was like it was the fortieth anniversary, wasn't it, as well? So, it, um, yeah, I just I just felt that it was a bit of a shame that that's the one that um, Rosnan ended on. His run on. But saying that, there is some really really awesome bits of exploration of his character in that film, even though the mm. plot's not largely terrible. You know, basically, M cuts the strings, doesn't he? And you know, he has PTSD in that and everything. Yep. Um, so, in that sense, there are some good bits of it. It just, um, it's just, you know, it's too much to have someone who is basically someone else underneath with fake skin and invisible cars at the same time. <laughs> and mm. there's this ridiculous scene where I think James Bond is surfing like a wave that's as big as the earth. <laughs> Yeah, that, that that was the CGI bit I was on about, and I just think you know, and I, I think the 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 least the, the least CGI used in a Bond film, in a way, the better, because the one thing that Bond's always been renowned for is the death-defying stunts sort of thing, the, the the kind of realism, which is what what why 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 Casino Royale was so big when when it came yeah. out with, uh, with think, realism think, and. Uh, I think largely with Bond films, you accept that it's death-defying because it genuinely looks like he's in danger, whereas in No Time to Die, it just didn't, did it? He, he couldn't connect to it. Yeah, you know, sort of like, um, you know, when, when he was surfing on that giant wave that was, you know, bigger than anything that I'd ever seen, it just didn't, you know, it felt like um, an over-the-top cartoon Bond. It, was, it, it just felt like pure fantasy, which is not what James Bond is, you know. But, but then again, you know, to play devil's advocate... Without that film, would they have then, would they have decided to basically sort of like you know do a reboot, of, reset the franchise with um, maybe that maybe they had to take it to its furthest logical conclusion, mm. you know, and that and that's what it took, you know. Um, I also think that Dying of the Day, though, you know, it, it at that point in the franchise, it was having to compete with like Mission Impossible and stuff like that, and there was all these films that were starting to come out, and Spy Fi was like branching out. You know, so I can see where they wanted to go with it, and I can, even though I don't like the film, 
it's important, I think, in context, just to kind of try and see why it happened, you know. I think what happened is um, all, all, all the action movies, when when when, um, when 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 Dying of a Day came out, they're all kind of like the same. They're all very, very over top, and uh, they've become very formulaic to a point where most, most other action films were ripping off the Bond films and, and vice versa. I and think then, you're right. And then what happened is the Bond, the Bond movies came out where yeah. it was more grounded, realistic uh, action sort of thing. And that, it, that is basically where, you know, Casino Royale and uh, the Craig Bond gets all the action sequences from. Because there's a scene in the Bond, mo- Bond movies where he's beating the shit out of a guy with a pen. He yeah, he's him talking with back pen. to basics. Um, yeah. But I think quite, you know, just before we put it to bed, the world is not um, dying on the day. I think basically they said, right, do you know what? If you're going to make unbelievable spy-fi type stuff, we'll do it bigger and we'll do it better. And that's why that film did what it did. Um, and then, like you say, you know, the realism of Bourne, you know, that film, it, um, the Bourne films, they researched and they asked people what it was actually like to fight in the field without having a laser mm. watch and without having a flick knife in your shoe and all these things. You know, it, it, um, it took it to a visceral, visceral level. Um, also, um, also the Bond, the Bond, Bond film is based on the books by Robert Lugman, um, and um, the, you know, in 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 the books is very much sort of like um, same sort of thing, this same sort of visceral action and and brutality in the fight sort of thing. I think it sort of like it made them look at it and it made them go right. Do you know what? Who is this character and what is he all about? You know, take away all the gadgets, take away this, that, and the other. Which you know, with the exception of one or two things, um, Casino Royale, there are no gadgets at all. It's just him, and it's it, and it's before he's a secret agent, really. Yeah, I mean, I like the I like the I like the opening sequence of Casino Royale where he earns his double O status, and I love the fact that I was done in black and white. You know, so like it gave you proper insight. And by the time you get to No Time Today, you you you're not surprised that he's suffering from PTS bloody D. No, you're not. And um, I think what it did is it took a massive gamble and it took a massive risk. And if you look at the most successful things, that's what most of them do. Most of them choose to do something very, 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 very bold and go, right, okay, this is the story that we want to tell. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think one thing that I want to pick up on is um, he was absolutely hammered and slated before he'd even had a look in Daniel Craig. Yeah, they're calling him James Bond, weren't they? James Bond, yeah. James Bland, all these things and stuff like that. And um, I think his arc is an absolute testament to people that have got a vision who go, right, this is what we're going to do. I mean, I remember, I remember him being announced. I remember thinking to myself, um, well, you know, not really seeing him in much because obviously I'd, I'd never really watched Layer Cake or any of, the, um, and any of those movies. It's not my thing. I'm more into the full-on escapist action genre. Um so I don't really go in for gangster movies where the action's as realistic sort of thing. Um, and the only thing I'd really seen Daniel Craig in was the, the Lara Croft Tomb Raider movies with um, with oh God, no, Angelina Jolie. And he, he wasn't particularly great in them, but then again, they weren't particularly great movies. So I, I, I just took the stance, oh, well, I've not really seen him in much. Um, we'll see, see how it works out. Sort of thing. He might might turn out to be really good. He might turn out to be really crap. But there's no sense in prejudging him based on the fact that he's got blonde hair. I mean, you can dye people's hair 
you know. And the fact I think that, the point is, it didn't matter. It's about who the character was, you know, and I think that's what was awesome is that um, they just they went back to the books, you know, and you know by that point, you know, if you look at No Time to Die, with the odd exception, you know, there was absolutely no reference to the books whatsoever by that point, really. There wasn't really, you know. I'm thinking that's. No, I mean, even, even Goldeneye. Goldeneye was named after the house that he lived in in Jamaica, wasn't it? And mm-hmm. stuff like that. And there were classic elements, but they ought to no time to die. And they just thought, sorry, they ought to um, die another day. And they just thought, we can't make another film like that. We're going to kill the franchise. What we're going to do, we need to do something brave, something bold. We need to make Bond relevant again. Yeah, I think the last one that they did was that, that was actually based on Liam Fleming's story was The Living Daylights. And that was based on a short Bond story that I did. Yeah, it was based on a combination of two short stories, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think after that, you know, they, they, they started uh, writing their own Bond films. But I think, you know, I think you're right. I mean, I think the Casino Royale... It re-established the character for a new era, um, you know, and um, you know I love the um, I love the tragic love story between Bond and and um, and and Vesper Lind. It explains so much about <clears throat> about why Bond has issues with women when he's betrayed, um, but you know on such a level by by Vesper. And at the same time, he's still he's still prepared to go back and try and save her. I mean, how many times do you make the same film? There's a you know, when I say the same film, I love all the Bond films. I think they were amazing, you know, as we've said during the course of this podcast. But, you know, most of the films, he was a two-dimensional character, you know. And how many times can you do that before you think, right, do you know what? We need to try and do something different. Yeah. And and I think I think the um, I think Casino Royale is it basically, you know, again, you know, if you got a uh, Timothy Dalton as the first actor to try and try and flesh out a Bond that's based more on on the Fleming Bond, and then then on the Majesty's Secret Service, you got you got a Bond where they're trying to sort of like add a bit of nuance to the stories and humanize Bond. Um, you know, you you could say that those two films there, you know, on Her Majesty's Secret Service and and um, Living Daylights, um, in a sense, kind of. Kind of did 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 a bit to try and pave the way for 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 the bond we're seeing Casino Royale. Absolutely, I mean all of Daniel Craig's arc is pretty much based on um, is pretty much all based off that bond in George Lazenby's On Majesty's Secret Service, and I think in two thousand and six the writers and you know Barbara Broccoli and all those people were thought right in nineteen sixty nine you weren't ready for that, but now you are, so now we're going to do it properly. Mm. And, and then we've got Quantum Solace, which was, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, they, I think I think if they could have gotten away with making Casino Royale and Quantum Solace back to back and, and just releasing them as one film, it probably would have worked out a bit better. But I think, I think also, it was riddled with production problems again. Yeah, again, you know, yeah. It, um, it's, it's the only weak link in the Daniel, you know, in the Daniel Craig arc. And it still did an important job, but... A lot of it was like they used quite a lot of experiment, experimental cinematography in that film, and that's what sort of part of the problem of the film was itself. Um, but it, it unfortunately, after such an amazing film with Casino Royale, it it just didn't. Um, I, I, I can't know. It's difficult to say. There isn't one problem with that film. It just. Um, it, 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 it. I don't know. It, it just. Um, I mean, the plot itself. Was a little bit um, 
it didn't seem big enough to villain, I don't think. Yeah, I think I think basically the Quantum Songus was basically a revenge film. You know, he was basically Bond's Bond wanting to get revenge for for, for, for the for the guy that killed Vespa at the end of the day. And um I thought the Oma Korinenko uh character was um was sort of like um a mirror of of Bond, as in as in she wanted to get revenge on, on on someone that you know he also happened to be going after. Um, but I think to be honest, Daniel Craig's strongest film after Casino Royale, is Skyfall. You know, and it's yeah, also. I, mean, the, um, it's I don't a, know about you, but I I don't really have. I love Daniel Craig's Bond. I think he's amazing. He's saved the franchise, turned it around. I don't have that many great things to say about Quantum of Solace, and I don't really want to sit here and slate it, so maybe we can put that to bed, like you say, and just move straight on to Skyfall. Well, that's kind of what I was doing do, mate. <laughs> um, you know, Skyfall, again, it's, uh, it goes into the origins of Bond. We go back to, uh, you know, the... the, uh, the, the... It strips him back yeah. even further, and you think, how can it do that at this point? You know? what? Mm. what how can you get sort of more than that? Um but Skyfall's a very, very, very clever film because it, it it sort of it starts to expose the establishment for what they mm. are and Bond starts to see that and starts to realise that it isn't simple and it isn't just like for Queen and Country all the time and I'll do this. You start to realise that, you know, I can't remember the name the main villain in um Skyfall or Javier Bardem's character. He was betrayed by them, you know, he was yeah. let down by them and, and you could argue that started with Sean Bean's character, like you said. Mm-hmm. But it, um, it started to give us sort of new and baddies. And, um, yeah. It, it, and then, you know, when he went back to his house where he was from, you know, he's basically fighting with his fist and with a knife. I know. You know? I know, it's, it's crazy. Just, it, it just stripped the character and took him right back. But it also sort of managed to have this really big, important plot in the background as well. Mm. And also, it also, you know, you know, it brought back the uh, DB five from from Casino Royale because if remembering, he won the DB five in Casino Royale from the um, yeah. from the guy in the card game, and then after we after he won it and he'd driven that woman round the block to to his hotel room and that we never seen hide nor hair of the DB five again until yeah, until okay. Skyfall. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's sort of like um, it also it was also the death of Judy Dench's M. Um, you could argue that Judy Dench's M was sort of like a rebooted version of the Judy Dench M that was in was it that was in the Pierce Brosnan movies, as in it wasn't the same character. It was slightly possibly, different. Yeah, M. I, I never really gave it too much thought to be honest, no. but quite possibly, yeah, it could be. Um, because she was she she had a slightly different approach. She she was more of a she was more of a frustrated mother in in the Daniel Craig era, I think, because she was a bit frustrated. You know, she was kind of a mother figure, I think, to 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 um to, to Daniel Craig's Bond. I mean, that's what the M was always meant to stand for, wasn't it? Really, you know, regardless of whether it's a man or a woman, whoever it was. Mm. And, um, well, well, actually, in the Avengers, in the TV series Avengers, they actually call call them mother. You know, they, yeah. no, no, I am. It's basically a character that heads up the entire organization that I work for, called Mother. <laughs> so, well, you know, it, again, it took. There were elements of that suggested with Pierce Brosnan and Judy Dench, but it really, really, really... Um, their relationship is such a massive reason as to why that film works, you know? Mm. But what I loved about the, uh, the the Craig relationship with her was um, when, when, when he was, when he was uh, hacking into her computer to get the information, he was going, how does he do this? <laughs> I 
<laughs> and the scene where where he breaks into her in, into her apartment, and she basically says to him, you know, don't you ever break into my apartment ever again. It's sort of like she's setting the boundaries. I think what the film, what the whole thing about the Emma incarnation of Judy Dench's Emma incarnation and Daniel Craig's Bond incarnation, it gave us all that tension and it gave us these characters who were bouncing off each other. And underneath it all is that the, both of them are really reluctant to believe that they're absolutely similar and that's why mm. it works so well. And it that's is. what's really going on. For me, in those two character dynamics, is the rubbing off. It's you know the similarities that they have are are why they're clashing heads so much, and they both understand that, but they never really say it. Yeah, and it's kind. Of, you know, that's what makes it even more heartbreaking when M dies at the end of Skyfall as well. Definitely, is he, and also, um, it, you know, all the, the subtones underneath it are that Bond is an orphan, and his parents did die when he was younger, and that's the closest thing that he's ever had to a parent. You know. Yeah, more than likely, you know, the, the fact that he's, he's in the establishment is sort of like he's, you know, may, may, maybe the maybe the, the, the hierarchy is sort of like um, kind, kind of what, what, what a parent, you know, what, what, what Bond envisages as what, what a parent would be. Because I think in, I think in, in the mythology, he's, um, his parents die when he's very young. I think it's only a climbing accident from yeah. the top of my head. And um, and and we we also learn that that that, that he was adopted by um, by Blofeld's father, Inspector. Definitely, yeah. And also, also Spectre is kind of like Tomorrow Never Dies redone, but more but more sinisterly because so like um, Spectre's kind of got that Cambridge Analytica sort of thing going on, as in he's he's uh, looking to you know to take over the entirety. The, the entire, entire surveillance systems around the world, if you remember, Inspector. Spectre's amazing for that, yeah. Spectre's like, it, the, the, the plot behind it and um, what's going on and the commentary on society, it's um, it's a seriously, seriously impressive film, Spectre, because it has to do so many things. It, has to, it basically has to say, right, okay, this is what these films have been leading up to. This, we're going to introduce you to Blofeld here. But we're also going to make a massive, massive commentary, like the biggest one of the Daniel Craig era, about what the current world state is of spying and what spying means, and compared to what it used to mean. Mm. I mean, it's um, it's quite frightening, Spectre. And again, you know, the same sort of the same sort of thing in No Time to Die. Um, you know, it's it's kind of like a nanite. It's kind of like a human-made virus that uh, that that. Sapping is trying to trying to get out into into the population. Again, um, it's there's so many amazing undertones with all these things. And again, Sapping is another example of what they're saying is you know it's a dirty industry, and the things that the British establishment have done, the British establishment have done. I can't remember the name of the operation in um, No Time to Die now. What it's called, Hercules was it or something? Yeah, something like that. And it was something that Emmett Emmett and Emmett commissioned. Something. Yeah, basically, um, it's not Hercules, but anyway, it doesn't matter. Anyway, so basically, what again is, and what it's saying is that somebody like Blofeld knows about those dirty secrets and uses them against them, you know, and um, it makes everything much more complicated. And it, it, it's it's just moving away from that archetypal hero and villain clean cut case. Yeah, it's all like um, adds the adds, adds the complexities and nuances that were missing from the. Um 
from 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 the original uh, Bond era running. I running think from... the original Bond era. You know, to repeat myself from earlier, people didn't want that. People wanted where the goodies and the and the Russians are the baddies. That's what they needed at the time. Mm. That's what they wanted. And I think that's. Well, I think this is where 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 the problem lies because No Time to Die. I'd always been universally. <laughs> universally applauded and it's it's done well uh financially and 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 uh, the critics love it and stuff like that there's still that very vocal sector of the bond and in and in the bond fandom that still wants uh the simplified escapism of the good guy versus bad guy sort of thing i think it's because you've got the last part you've got like the last of a certain generation and you know i don't think i think that we all kid ourselves that the good old days, but in reality, they weren't the good old days. The 1970s, which was the golden era for Bond, with the grimmest decade that there was in the last century in some ways, outside of World War Two, stuff like that. And you know, we need, we need, to like, yeah. if you look at the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s, and the 90s, the 70s is the one where everybody was saying that's when everything was amazing. And globally, it wasn't like that at all. It wasn't. I mean, to be honest, I remember I remember growing up in the seventies and eighties, and every time I seen a Bond film and stuff like that, it was pure escapism, basically because um, I'd never been outside of the country, and yet I seen this secret agent yeah. traveling to all these exotic locations and sleeping with all these beautiful women and driving around in these all the all these exotic cars. I so, think that like you know <laughs> the likes of the Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker in nineteen seventy seven and nineteen seventy nine. It's quite incredible that in this country, which is like James Bond is a British icon, the winter of discontent, all the strikes, all the political violence, all mm. that stuff was going on. And I think people didn't want to look at what was going on and commentate on it because it was too depressing at the time. Yeah, well, it's quite quite depressing now, really. You know, you know, given what's going on with uh, with Brexit and stuff like that. I mean, I can't even watch the news anymore for more than sort of maybe a couple of days on the trot because it's just sort of like. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'd, I'd rather exist in a um, in 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 a, in a world of secret agents where where the you know where where things are a lot simpler. So I can see I can see the I can see the point of the people that are, that are railing against. Um, I can, but I think that I, I understand it to a degree. But I think we live in such complicated times now, in such a dark time that if you want to tell an interesting story. I don't think that you can. I genuinely believe, and all right, I'm living through it, so maybe I'm, I'm wrong. But in 30, 40 years to come, this time will be shown as turmoil, unlike anything that we'd seen for, you know, unlike anything else, really, of a different type of ilk. And um, a film like Spectre, really, sort of, and No Time to Die, but specifically Spectre, I think. No Time to Die was about the end of Bond's run. But Spectre, specifically, it... it you know, it, it was the modern Bond film. It was the archetypal modern James Bond film. It really was. You, you know, it, it was, and I, I agree with you, and I, I've, actually, I've actually enjoyed the Daniel Craig era and, and, and stuff like that, you know, for, for what it is. Um, but, you know, I do, I, I can sympathise to a degree with the people that um, have not enjoyed the Daniel Craig era, if you know what I mean. So um, I, think, yeah, I think it's I, because... I guess I can, I can... I can understand why a lot of people might not have liked the fact that, you know, the death of James Bond and No Time to Die, but I don't know, I mean, I'd struggle for someone to have not enjoyed Casino Royale, maybe the other things and what went after it, but I don't know what there is not to enjoy, really, in, in, in you know, for me, Casino Royale is the strongest one out of all of those mm. um, films, you know, and that one... Um, it had the benefit of... It was allowed to just be a complete and total character study, really, without... 
it didn't have to focus on the plot too much because all it was doing was setting up an arc. Mm. So, which begs the question, which is probably the best way to conclude this show, um, is what next? Will For we, me, will, will we see? Will we see these characters of M and uh, Money Penny and 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 uh, Hugh played by the same actors again, and and a new Bond come in, and uh, and we just sort of completely ignore Casino Royale and and uh, Daniel Craig films, and just look at that as a, an alternate Bond universe. I mean, they're all alternative Bond universes, you know? That's what's really weird, is that all of a sudden, everybody's like, oh my God, you've killed something that's a 30-film arc. And it isn't, you know? They're just those films, it doesn't work quite that. We all know it's a fictional character, and all this is, is the same way as sometimes Superman or Batman dies in the comics. For me, you just make another James Bond film and get on with it, and, and you don't worry about any of it. You don't have to. I don't think that... I think that is the point, is that what we've got I wrote in sort of my piece about it is this five film arc is basically a cradle to grave character study of what mm. James Bond is and, and who he is and there's endless material to rediscover so I don't think you have to overthink it I just think that maybe make a film about when he was first a spy when he was younger but I don't I don't think it's as big an issue as people are making out personally but you might think differently I don't know I, you know, I kind of think the the original Bond films right through to the last one that Brosnan did, it was kind of like assumed that it was the same Bond all the way through, sort of thing, in, in the sense that it was never actually set up and it was never actually said that this is a different agent sort of thing. You kind of assumed it was the same one. Um, but by the same time, I, I kind of made that leap, a lie on goal that it was a different agent, that that James Bond was just as much a code name as 007. I mean, here's one for you. You know, the next Bond movie, the way they've set it up, you could very easily call the film 007 and make a film mm. called 007, and Lashana Lynch could be in it as 007. Yep, and, but they're not going to do know. that. Well, I don't, I don't know. You know no, Bar- not... Bar- Barbara Brocken has already stated that they're not going to do that. She's already stated that Bond is a man. He's a literary character. He's a man. He's always been a man and he will always be played by a man. I um, didn't say that she would play James Bond. I said the film could be called Double Seven. Yeah, I know, but um, I don't think they will do that. I think, I think to be Barbara honest... Barbara Bradley um, hasn't said that isn't going to happen. Well, she's not know? said that it's not going to happen, but, you know... You Otherwise, know, I think it's a bit... Otherwise, but, why was that character in it? You know, I think if that's the only representation that a black woman's going to get and it's sort of like a token in Daniel Craig's last film, it's almost like, I don't mind the fact that he didn't know about a lot about that character in No Time to Die, but I do think that if that character's being put there, it has to be more than sort of just for a plot device, you know? Mm, yeah, but she's not 007 anymore, isn't she? She gave she gave it up, gave it back over to Craig in, in the film. Um, but then... Like, for me, the main point was, the most important thing he said was that it's just a number. It doesn't mm. matter, you know. But I do think we will see a male James Bond figure again because after the film, it said James Bond will return. It said those immoral words, which exactly. are really, 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 really crucial. I mean, I'm so, not... I'm not against there being a spin-off with Michelle Lynch. Um, I think it. I think it'd be really good to have a spin-off. I mean, I'm not Michelle saying Lynch. I think that is the way we should go. Definitely, I'm just saying that. You know, I think the big thing we need to talk about, though, is that, you know, what what's really huge is that, they'll, you know, that's the last film that MGM will make, you know. There's one now, Amazon on the rights, you know, Amazon production studios. Mm. I mean, and that... that so, that... I honestly, I, I don't, you know, it's, it's it sounds unthinkable to say it, but 
we might it might be the end of it as a cinematic franchise, you know. Might get a TV franchise. Which is a, 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 which I I kind of think if that is what's going to happen, that's why they had to kill him off on screen on the cinema to say things are changing because mm. I there are. Can you think of any other franchise that is purely cinematic these days? Really? Well, I mean, I guess you've got like um, Fast and Furious, maybe that Mission Impossible, but. Do you know, I think you know. Do you know, I think could be a possibility. Um, I mean, you, you, we could end up with a TV series with the Shining Inch called Double Seven, which carries on from from where the where the No Time to Dying left off. Could have that, or we could have a one-off movie. Um, we could have a um, a young James Bond, an adventure of a young James Bond, which now would have to be sort of like set in the nineteen seventies or 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 eighties, where Bond's a young man. I sort of think that um, the supporting cast, like, um, have been really, really, really popular, like the Modern Q, yeah. Modern Money Penny, you know, but I don't know how much more there is for them to do in, in it, really. You know, Money Penny had an important arc in those films, and we found that out. And as much as I love Q, unless he's going to have his own TV series or something, he was always a supporting character. So I don't think it's necessarily, like, hugely significant whether or not those are in those actors are in the film next mm. in the same role or not but that's just me you know i mean i'd, I'd like to see them again because i think that i they... would dislike yeah no but i think it'd be all, i love them i just i don't think it's make or break for me personally you know yeah i mean the the the, the difficulty is um is you know we had the same with the original run we had desmond llewellyn play play q for for, for near 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 enough 40 years yeah. And and um, and you know by that you know that that is absolutely bloody brilliant. The fact that you know still playing M when he was sort of like in his nineties, you know I think he died at ninety or something. I think the last one he did he was in the late eighties, in his late eighties. Sorry, um, but in that time that he played M, we'd seen several different actors play Bond and play M. Yeah, I think um, you reminded me of something that I wanted to mention about No Time to Die. I just really love that little nod on the wall where you saw a picture of um, Bernard Lee and you saw a picture of Judy Dench as the former ones, you know, that just those little nods and that little tribute, I think, was a really touching little thing, you know. It, it was, yeah. But, you know, it's just sort of like, um, I think, I don't I don't think we're living in an era now anymore where you can have the same actor play, play, um, play a character in a movie franchise for 40 years. I think Des I think Desmond Llewellyn was kind of like uh, an exception to the to the rule, and you know to be honest, um, you know he was probably most well known for his connection to the Bond movies than he was for anything else that he'd done in his life. I think probably more so than all, even the James Bond actors. You know, yeah. he's the only one that had outlived them all. Like. And 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 he was he was he, you know by the time by the time it got into the nineteen eighties and nineties, he'd become somewhat of a national treasure. I think we covered all the Bond films, and uh, I think we've actually um, run out of time to die. <laughs> I think we have, mate. Yeah, I think yeah. Um, personally, if you ask me, you know, to wrap it up, my last thoughts are that I think that the franchise is in a really, really, really fantastic place, and I think that um, someone who we really should mention is Barbara Broccoli because I think that her passion for that character, you know, as such an icon of world cinema. Um, it's just been sensational and especially the job in that she's done in ensuring a massive personal cost that No Time to Die got a cinematic release mm. you know she's really really a custodian 
of a beloved character, and I think that, that she really deserves a lot of credit for that. Yeah, no, I think it's also credit to you know to to how 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 good you know because obviously you know Cubby Broccoli, her father. You know, yeah. he, he loved the Bond franchise, and it's. I think she's kind of a credit to him for having sort of like continued to be the custodian of the films when you know she could have easily just gone off and done her own thing. I think know? she would. She, you get the impression she would happily stake all of her personal money to make sure the franchise was. She cares about it. She loves it. Mm. You know, it's her life. Well, you know what does what does the future of Bond look like? I don't know, but I, I think you know. I'm kind of hopeful. I'm, I think it will be exciting. Um, I think whatever it's good not to know, though, isn't it? I think that's what they've done. That's smart. Is that sometimes in a franchise, this is what you need. You know, you need a challenge, and you need to think. Right? Okay, we're going to have to have someone to really think and put their heads together, a bunch of writers or whatever. And I think that's what makes it exciting. Is that you don't know what's next. Yeah, what do you think? I, I I think the next Bond film is going to star Boris Johnson. I think it's going to it's going to turn out that Boris Johnson isn't the Machiavellian evil character that we all think he is. That he's really James Bond. What do you think? I think, yeah, I, I think one thing would be you know I think we can safely say we're not going to see the Daniel Craig James Bond death undone because I think that that's, that would just ruin everything. You know. Mm. Um, I think we can safely say that no writer worth his salt is going to put the thingy behind that. Um, but it is going to be see, it's going to be very interesting to see where we go from here, you know. And I honestly don't know. I, I I wouldn't know. I don't know. I don't have any thoughts on what I actually think will happen next. Other than I wouldn't be surprised if we do see a TV series at some point, which I don't know what I think about. I don't know. It depends on how well it's done. I mean, they did they did pretty good things with the with the Indiana Jones Chronicles back in the nineties. I guess I so. But for me. Bond's a cinematic franchise and, and anything other than that, I don't know if I can get behind, you know, and I know that's pretty, I'm not saying I won't watch it or I won't be able to judge it on its own merit, but I think it will be sad to see anything other than James Bond on the big screen because he's the ultimate screen legend, you know. Because they could do both. They could do... They could yeah, do... that's it. They might, they, might, they might well do that. I, I don't think that, I'm not sure that they, they have any other option than to, you know, than to go streaming at some point in some way or another. I think it's... It's, I don't know if it'll survive if it doesn't, you know. Yeah, it needs it needs to change. It needs to repackage itself. Um, I mean, I've I've been reading the James Bond comics that Dynamite have been doing. Dynamite have been doing some really good work, and they they actually did um, um, a story arc of young James Bond adventures um, a couple couple years, about eighteen months ago, and it basically traced his time during the Second World War. When he first become a spy, so it's kind of like a prequel to the to the James Bond that we see in the sixties, in a sense. Um, so it, there's lots of potential. There's lots of different directions in which they could go. Um, you know, they, they could even take it back to the to the eighteenth century and have a, have a James Bond in the eighteenth century. You know, <laughs> fighting with saber and fire. You know, they could do all sorts. I mean, um, I think that what's been done by Daniel Craig is amazing. But the next Bond film should just be a standalone action film that concentrates on that. I don't think, you know, I'm not saying undo any of the work of his character or anything like that, but I think that that's been done superbly. And, you know, the next Bond film needs to sort of... Be its own thing. Be its own thing. It just needs to be, you know, maybe a series of two or three standalone movies without any continuity is the way to go, you know. Yeah, sort sort of do what they did with the original with the with the original movies because there wasn't really much continuity between. Yeah, I don't think we need another saga yet, do we? No, and also I think they just done done such a 
a standout job of it with Daniel Craig here. They'll, they'll struggle to even surpass that. So they need they need to put a bit of distance between that by, by doing some standalone films and then maybe look at doing a saga later on down the line. Yeah, I think, um, you know, young James Bond would, could be an interesting place to go. That, that would seem the natural place to go next for me. Mm. Yeah, that's something I'd like to see. I'd like to see a teenage James Bond becoming a spy. That'd be interesting. Um, but yeah, on that note, um, we're going to wrap up um, this. Um, so if you've listened this far, well done. Um, we'll, we'll, um, we'll give you a, a badge of honour and promise not to shoot you. Um, but, you know, for this and all, all our other shows, uh, please, please uh, subscribe um, to the uh, to the channel. Um, we're, we're Sci-Fi Pulse Radio and uh, we're available now on Spotify. Um, but, you know, thanks for listening and um, it's goodbye from me and it's also goodbye from Ben. Thanks, everybody. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure, Ian, as always. Um, thanks, everyone, for listening to me um, talk about James Bond that I absolutely love. It's been a pleasure and I will speak to you all again very soon. Thank you.